happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Okay, hello everyone. It's me, James, today, and I'm joined by three guests, all members of the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission. Uh, What we're talking about today is accepting Indigenous leadership on issues of climate change and issues of uh, more broadly ecological damage. And specifically, we're discussing an emergency declaration that they recently released about the state of the Pacific salmon population, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves. If you could give us your name and any relevant affiliations that you think listeners should know, that would be wonderful. Hello, my name is uh, Kirby Maldo. My ancestral name is Hapwalaksa. I am from the Timsian people in what is now known as Northwest British Columbia, Canada. My mother is Timsian. My father is Gixan, and I am from Wilp We Get, which is the house of the night drummer from the Fireweed clan. I am also uh, an independent consultant and contractor, and um, I look forward to our discussion today. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Louie Wagner, Jr. from Metlakatla, Alaska, and I'm Takewoody of the Brown Bear clan. From Cape Fox, San Yukon. And I have lived in Metlakatla my whole life of 75 years. And, and we're connected to the Unic River through my grandmother. And <clears throat> she was born at Cape Fox. And we've been on the Unic River 
ever since I was big enough to go with my older brother. And so I've been up there since like 1960. Wow. And my brother's was up there um, close to 20 years before that. So but our family has always been on the Eunuch River to um, harvest at the fish camp up there. And, and we'd fish the Oligans, bring the Oligans home to the, to the people and, and the catch can sacks in Metlakatla, and then people would send them out to the West Coast. So we're um, very connected. We go up to the Eunuch in the spring for Oligan and the fall for hunting now. They used to do the salmon up on the river with the fish camp. I served on our community council for from 2000 and to about, I think, 2015 in there. And now I'm their tribal rights representative for the community. And I report back to our council after each of our meetings. Thank you very much. And Guy, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, yes, my name is Guy Archibald. I'm the executive director of the Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission. Um, we were formed about nine years ago by a commission of 15 sovereign tribes in Southeast Alaska reacting to, you know, a, a huge amount of mind development and further potential mine development going on in the transboundary watersheds that drain from British Columbia to Alaska. I used to work at the mines. I'm an environmental chemist by trade. I help tribes monitor their own environments and their food security through science. And, and, um, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this discussion as well. Yeah, that's a fantastic setup for all of you. Thank you very much. So I think we should begin because maybe people may have missed the, the extent and, and the severity of the emergency with salmon populations. And so perhaps we could start out by explaining like how it, how it was. It seems like, Louis, you have a lot of experience there. Uh, and then what has caused things to be at the situation they're at now? Would that be a good way to go about it? Yes, that would be a good way. Where we are at now on this, the salmon is that Bruce Jack mine started on the river and none of us knew about it until way late. Summer's around the mid, mid 90s, 1990s. And by, by 2000, especially um, in the spring when we'd be up there, the Oligans were starting to disappear. And then in the fall moose hunting, the salmon were, were disappearing. Uh, and there's a lot less bears and moose now where the river, along the riverbank would be full of um, the parts of the fish that bears didn't eat. There'd be so many bears and fish. And now you don't smell any of that, but, and it's really affected the king salmon they completely disappeared for at least six years that my son and I noticed they spawn up on the river there. And as we always pay attention, we check on the main spawning stream of Kingsbury where they spawn. And the last three years, we've been starting to see some come back. 
in that that Bruce Jack mine, which found out later, they were putting their tailings into a lake up on the mountain there. And then, you know, as they filled it up and the rain filled it up, the overflow came down into the river. And the river is so shallow, it's only a few inches deep and it's it's not very wide. It's it's the smallest river out of the Stikin and the Taku there. And so any pollution in that river will completely kill it off. The salmon runs their way down from what we've seen through the years. But, you know, it's also the wildlife that's disappearing with it because there's the feed isn't there. There's not the amount of seagulls, a lot less sea, seals and sea lions. It's affecting on the food chain everything. Yeah. Um, I spent a little bit of time in your part of the world just uh, uh, pack rafting and, and and hiking and things. And certainly like it's a, it's a very beautiful place but it's a very like a fragile one too as you've explained like there's these mines can very quickly have this effect that cascades up the ecosystem could you explain a little bit of the role that salmon play not just in the uh in the provision of food for the for the animal life of the area but also like the the role they play traditionally in provisioning and feeding indigenous people well yeah we um you know we put up as much sockeye as we can and then and king salmon and a lot of it we'll fish and get during the winter to, to eat you know and just get them fresh because they don't keep as well in the freezer but as indigenous you could you know look in our pantry and see we've lived the same life as i grew up with with my parents and grandparents nothing has changed for us we've taught our children the, the same way how to harvest and um, take care of the fish. <clears throat> Back um, in the 50s, when I was a little kid in Matlakatla, Alaska, hardly anyone, if they even had a refrigerator, they didn't have freezers. So they they had to smoke the fish really hard, and, and they put them in those um, things. They're like four-gallon coffee cans to... Um, with newspaper on the bottom and on top, and they would keep through the winter. They wouldn't wouldn't get moldy, so that that was their the main staple for the for the whole year. Is it a situation now that like people just can't rely on salmon as a staple food because of these mining tailings reducing the population? Yeah, without any hardly any king salmon coming in. There's you know a few from the hatchery out there, but. They even um, in Ketchikan, they they've closed the king salmon derby for I think it's into its fourth year now. So it's just um, if that that other big mine goes in, well, the river will be destroyed, and it's going to flow all the way out into into the ocean here into um, Clarence Straits and Dixon entrance. It's, there's be no avoiding it. It's got nowhere else to go. It, that comes straight out through the West Beam Canal and then East Beam Canal. Kirby, I know you're, you're not quite in exactly the same place, but can you explain the situation with the salmon population where you are? Yeah, maybe I'll give a little more context to that. Um, I live in uh, northern British Columbia, northwest British Columbia, on the um, on on the in the Skeena River, 
um, watershed. And um, over the past uh, probably 30 or 40 years, we've seen an extreme decline in salmon, uh, specifically sockeye uh, and uh, king salmon, as you guys call it. We call them spring salmon over here. But uh, we've seen an extreme decline in uh, returns. Um, and, um, you know, we've, we've stopped a lot of our commercial fisheries and our food fisheries, uh, until which time we feel that the, uh, the returns are sufficient enough so that we can continue to harvest. So we've got, uh, the Tai test fishery at the mouth of the Skeena and, um, they, they do a count every year um throughout starting in in the spring and throughout most of the summer they do a test fishery and they estimate the amount of salmon that are returning uh and we do not fish as i said commercially or for food until we feel that the numbers are sufficient that have gone past that fishery there are many obstacles that face salmon today uh, most of which are a result of human activity, uh, logging, mining, commercial fishing, oil and gas. Um, and we all have to take a little bit of responsibility for that because we all enjoy those um, resources and we use them. And uh, I've always said to people that we can't mine our way out of this the global warming and, and climate change. We have to learn how to, um, we have to learn how to use less. And, um, as I said, you know, mining, obviously it's, it's a, it's a big concern, but there's also logging, there's oil and gas as well as commercial fishery. Um, you know, there's, uh, a lot of things that happen out in uh, open waters in the North Pacific that can be changed fairly easily. Um, you know, they there's a, a fishery uh, right now. I, I believe it's an area 104. Uh, uh, a um, fishery that is targeting um, pink salmon. But by our estimations and by estimations from Alaska fisheries, they are the bycatch for Skeena salmon, Skeena sockeye salmon that are returning to the Skeena is about 470,000. Now, these are sockeye that are a bycatch. Um, we're not asking this fishery to stop. We're asking this fishery to be more of a terminus fishery, which means that they better target the pink salmon so right now they're they're fishing in open waters uh approximately half the fleet from what i understand we're not asking this fishery to stop we're asking them to move inside so that skeen and sockeye can go past this fishery um and right now we are just barely making our escapement every year that make it up into the headwaters where they can spawn. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways we can address the issue of salmon um, declining in numbers. 
there's some low-hanging fruit. There's a lot of other things that are going to take a lot of time to enforce. But um, I'm hoping as transboundary nations, we can come together to work towards making sure that salmon have a fighting chance. Salmon are very resilient. Um, they're a, a keystone species, and they're a good indicator of the health of the environment and surrounding areas, as well as the water. Yeah, I think that's an excellent summary. Thank you. And perhaps, Guy, you have a little bit more experience on the industrial side of thing. It, I guess, can you explain how it is that, um, on the face of it, because Louis was saying the tribal nations weren't aware that this mine in one case or these certainly like these other practices right um some of which are sort of very nebulous like global warming others which are specific like this sockeye bycatch and and the forestry with the nations in question here like the the people whose ancestral and current homelands this is happening on not consulted or was there insufficient explanation of the consequences when these with these mines and, and forestry operations were opened um, certainly, especially early on, you know, to this day and to this day, the right of free entry, which means somebody could be sitting pretty much anywhere in the world, get on the Internet and claim a mine claim without any kind of notification to the landowner or surface owner by swiping a credit card. Oh, wow. So uh, there's no even requirement for notification on, on that. And, you know, early on, the mining companies you know, they do a uh, investor um, presentation. Here's that they're doing in Las Vegas and, and New York and this and that. And then they attempt to come into the communities with that presentation. And, and what they might call uh, meaningful engagement is actually one, it's completely one-sided. It's not respectful of the process within that tribe or that community. And it's, completely tone deaf and and so what engagement what consultation does happen is is incredibly inadequate to make matters worse the south the alaskan tribes um are landless communities we don't don't have jurisdiction over a land area and uh, great work is being done though we're not starting from zero here uh first nations out on the land through land guardian programs and more doing great work southeast tribes monitoring you know their ecosystems and food security and fish consumption and all that great science and information um but we do need to incorporate um one we need to recognize that um we can't manage a a complex organism such as a watershed by dividing it down the middle under two different jurisdictions. We have to, I don't say move the border, we basically have to erase it. And and we need to treat that ecosystem as a whole. Um, climate change is having a huge impact. Uh, the Chinook or the King Salmon or the Spring Salmon, they're the largest, so they have the largest egg. They have the less surface area in the environment to absorb oxygen, so they're kind of an indicator of the first, you have a problem here, kind of red flag going up, you know, in your in your network complex ecosystem. And and both Kirby and Wright were right, it's the crash of the entire network that we're seeing. It, 
salmon is just an indicator of that, but we're seeing it across the board. And it's unfortunate because here, especially right now in Southeast Alaska, where I live in Juneau, Alaska, prior to European contact, there was probably five times the population living here than there is now. You look at maps of the old village, they're everywhere. <laughs> and they've been there for tens of thousands of years. They managed to do it sustainably, do it with bounce, do it with effective, uh, you don't really call it in management, but in engagement mm -hmm. with nature. And, and so here we are kind of on the front lines of it. And strangely enough, we have the solution and a people who have within their oral history, the stories of, of migrating due to climate change, of adjusting their life due to climate change. It's in the history or, you know, the current oral history. And so when we're looking, when we say unify here, there's a great voice um, in the indigenous people to, if there is, yeah, and it's, it's hard to justify with mining, I'm just going to say that because it's an inherently extractive down to the last profitable dollar industry. It's not sustainable. It's, it's reducible constantly as it operates. Uh, and, uh, and now it's being used to justify uh, climate change, adjusting to climate change is now being used to justify more mining, which again, as usual, is going to fall on the backs of the local people and communities and indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's shockingly similar to the issues that we see where I live, which is at the other end of the United States and on its southern border where you know, the Colorado River is a binational river, right, which is managed by two countries kind of in aggressive competition and we're seeing the same thing yeah. here right the justification seven different states <laughs> yes yeah, seven yeah different states yeah. yes yes and all of them have competing uh, like i was rafting the colorado river last year and I, i've paddled the colorado river but the the change in that river ecosystem that i've seen and i've only lived in the u.s for you know 15 years is it, remarkable and i can't imagine what it's like over 75 years um and the same thing with mining, actually, we're seeing the justification of very damaging lithium mining, right? As, as, and, and then being told that this is a solution to climate change and then whilst also destroying these ecosystems. If people think it's just an issue that affects one group of people in one group of the part of the world, it's not. It, it's, it, it's very universal. And that's just in the United States. We see the same thing in places I've traveled for work in East Africa or in, in South America. I wonder then if we could talk about the value of accepting indigenous leadership when it comes to um, addressing, I think you, we began addressing that in Guy's comment very well, but perhaps one thing we could talk about when we talk about that is um, I think when people think about specifically British Columbia and Alaska, they, they, the people will use the term like frontier or wilderness a lot, right? Which it raises the fact that, as, as Guy mentioned, and, and both of you have, have shared with us, that people have been living there for tens of thousands of years in a way that that was sustainable, right? Like these weren't un, places without human beings. It wasn't empty land. And it was just land that wasn't inhabited by people of European ancestry. And And so when we talk about like how to go forward with this land, why it's important to listen to the people who have always been there. Is that a good framework? All we have is our stories and how, how we grew up with the old folks 
and um we were lucky to have a rowboat and a pair of oars back in back in the fifties still. Late fifties. Uh, some of the people started being able to get a little three horse Johnson, something like that, and that was a lot of power, but we also um the glaciers have melted away up on, on the Unic River there. So that really affects affecting the amount of water flow and the level of the water. Very important to a lot of us yet to live live the way of life that we've always lived. And all the testimony that I have done is um, not serious because I don't have a college education like that. It just um, that's that's what they want. I mean, the people they learn it from school books now, but they, they've never lived a life and been on all these different areas the beaches you know and we have all our seasons every seasons we have something to look forward to it's like right after well, i'll start with the spring on the hooligans and and then seaweed and king salmon is a big big thing to go after and then we have you know the summer and then into fall yeah also we have the the greens we call asparagus, wild asparagus. Uh, mm-hmm. We're we're harvesting all the time. We um our our children that we've we have um they all know how to do it, where to go. So we've been continuing in our teaching on on our our side. We're just um they don't want to take us serious, I guess. Anyway, so. I've been, you know, been to a lot of meetings and talked about a lot of the stuff here. And it's just, it's going to be a shame if we, we just keep losing everything. We're we're getting very close. The salmon are getting a lot less. I've been a commercial fisherman my whole life. And, and then later, as the kids got older, we went into tendering. So we just had family aboard and, you know, we would get loads after loads through the um, 70s into the 80s and 90s. And then pretty soon you could see the saners are coming in with less and less fish. And just Oligan alone, it been 15 years up there for the Oligan in the spring and <laughs> get out of school for a little while and to go up the river. It, ours from Matlakatla, Alaska to... Um, up to the Unique River, a little over 100 miles, so we have a 200-mile round trip to get up there and back. And there's no safe harbor there; it's wide open to the weather. So you have to really best to learn from somebody who's been up there a few times, and you know they know where you can maybe duck duck out of for a safe spot. And um, easy to get hurt on the river because it's so shallow. Yeah, we lost the 15 years on the river. That's what it was due to um, weak runs. And they disappeared for a while. They they were going up the other streams to get clean water, even on, I call Revilla Gagato on Ketchikan Island. They went up there one year, and it was a really good run. But then they'll go through Beam Canal and the other streams when they have to. Oligan are pretty smart. They um they don't have to go back to the same river all the time. 
we'd have to go and through the canal and check the other places where they might go up. But with the salmon, they need that clean river because they won't go up any other river. And their numbers really, really have dropped. Used to see king salmon, you know, probably as far as I could reach, which is about six feet in spawners in the river. And three years ago, they were um, maybe long as one arm and couldn't find any real big ones in there. But it was good to see some of them coming back. <clears throat> but that won't last long if things continue to, to go the way they are. Yeah, it's just, it's very sad to hear like this. Uh, yeah, this these changes you've seen, I suppose. So perhaps you could explain to us like there's this emergency declaration that's been made, right? And we've heard um, Louis explain like very eloquently how how this how like, he's seen this decay over his life. Um, how can like accepting this leadership right there's this emergency that that's been declared i guess like um is it is it possible you said salmon were very resilient and you said the Uligan were very smart like can things return to the way they were can we at least stop things getting worse like and how yeah i you know i think um our relationship with the environment is is broken um I'm a communications specialist. That's that's what I do. So I I am all about relationships. Um, now, when I talk about relationships, I'm just I'm not talking just about relationships with uh, our fellow human beings, but I'm talking about relationships with the land, the water, the air, and um, I like to simplify it for people. I always tell people, you know, when you're in a relationship with a significant other or or a pet you know a lot of people have pets um it's it's a reciprocal relationship there's a lot of give and take and and there's a lot of um um compromise and as as a young boy and growing up uh in in Gixan territory and in Chimsan territory I I was always taught that you only took what you needed and you didn't you didn't take any more and you respected all living things um you know i i don't mean to pick on anybody but sport fishing um is is against our laws you know we we don't play with fish it's 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 just something we do not do um and and when i'm talking about our relationship with with all living things uh you know the land the water uh, the the swimmers the two-legged the four-legged the ones fly uh, our relationship with them is broken. You know, we we used to harvest a lot more than we do now. You know, in in the Skeena watershed, you know, we used to harvest seals. We used to harvest, um, you know, a lot more things other than just salmon. And what we've done over the last fifty or so years is put so much pressure on salmon that they just can't sustain it. You know, um, uh, uh, you know, I I might not be very popular popular for saying this but you know we used to eat a lot more seals and and i think we should commercialize a seal hunt um and and sell those products so that people can make money and people can be fed um i'm not blaming the seals for for the decline in salmon uh, there's a lot of 
uh, factors at play when it comes to the decline in salmon. But um, what I'm trying to explain is that our relationship with the environment is broken and, and right. we need to fix it. And, and it's out of balance right now. And we need to bring it back to balance. Mm-hmm. And we just need to consume less. Certainly, yeah. And does that, um, I'm curious, that sort of like heavy emphasis on salmon, is that because it was very commercial, so people would be able to harvest just the salmon and sell it, as opposed to harvesting these other animals that they were harvesting before? I think I think uh, salmon were very plentiful, right? You know, you hear stories about when, when the Europeans first arrived, you know, they could, I've heard stories of them, you know, putting a bucket into the water and the, pulling the bucket out and it would be just full of salmon. Right. So I thought, wow. I, I think that, um, you know, there, there was a mentality that, you know, the, the resource was infinite, right. It would last forever. Uh, I, I think that was the mentality. And so they just harvested it, harvested as much as they could, as fast as they could, and, and sent it around the world. And, uh, you know, if, if any of your listeners haven't tasted salmon, it, it's it's one of the most flavorful things you've ever, you will ever taste. And, and it's it's the best meat in the world on the planet for you in terms of nutrients and and such. And, uh, you know, it's it's totally natural. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's just all around good for the environment. You know, it, it feeds the the birds, the two legs, the four legs, it even feeds plants, you know, and uh, it's it's so resilient and we just need to give salmon a chance and uh, figure out a way forward where, where we can have a, a reciprocal relationship with salmon and the environment. Yeah. And perhaps like, are there concrete steps? Uh, like a lot of our listeners are not in, in the areas where you are, but they, and they could be all over the world, right? But are there things they could do to show solidarity, to give you support? Um, how can they help? Um, well, I would encourage encourage everybody to you know visit our website and and kind of understand what we see as a pathway forward for remedying this. You know, it's it's you shouldn't come to the table to complain about a problem unless you have a remedy proposed here, mm-hmm. and and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take that knowledge that um, is in, you know, Louie and just in the eunuch and the knowledge in every little stream, even the knowledge within the genetics, that fine grain of every salmon that goes up every little stream and get that incorporated into, you know, the, uh, you know, into an engagement process that Ultimately, the way we've been doing it is a failed experiment. We can call that now because these methods we put in to try to protect wild salmon, we've seen nothing but wild salmon decline. Um, You asked if salmon are resilient. They very much are. They very much are resilient. There's reason there's five species of salmon here is because of all the... uh, upheaval, seismic upheaval living on the Pacific Rim. Um, They're very resilient to the occasional large impact. Just like you and me, though, we're very unresilient to constant pressure and stress. You know what it does to your digestive system, nervous system, everything, your family life. (laughs) Uh, It's the same for these ecosystems. It's not the occasional huge impact. It's It's the continuous stress. And... This 
area was not, it's not really pristine. It was highly modified by the people and actively engaged with their environment. They enhanced salmon streams and resting pools. They built clam gardens. They moved trees and vegetation around, you know, enhanced beaches. It was very active. And we can incorporate that knowledge into how we move forward on a lot of these things. And we need to do that. Yeah, when, when people ask me what they can do, Mm-hmm. I respond by saying, what you can do is change your habits. Now, a lot of people think that this, this climate change problem, uh, resource extraction, etc., is too big for us to, to tackle. But uh, actually, it's not. You know, um, If we all do a little bit and, and just change our habits, um, we, we can make huge change. You know, I, I always think about... Um, you know, in, in British Columbia and in Canada, uh, gosh, about, you know, 40 years ago, um, they brought in a law stating that everybody had to wear seatbelts. Um, there was huge backlash. Nobody wanted to wear a seatbelt. They, they weren't used to it, right? But after a while, you know, nobody, nobody even bothered to complain about it. We just do it. Whenever I get into my vehicle now, it's second nature to put my seatbelt on. I don't even think about it. It's done. Now, if we can all just look at some of the habits that we have, whether it's, you know, um, using too much water, maybe some wasteful practices, um, you know, driving when we don't need to drive. Maybe, maybe we can walk a little more often. Maybe we can bike a little more often. Just really look at what actions you're taking daily that may be contributing to climate change and global warming and try to change one habit. And when you've got that habit change, change another one. And, um, you know, I, I think over time we can, we can fix this, but it's going to take a concerted effort by everybody on this planet and, and more so by some of us who are, a little more um, privileged, I guess, to be able to change our habits. Thanks. No, I think that was very, very well said. Um, do you have anything to add, Louis? Yeah, I appreciate what Kirby said earlier on how we're connected to the land. Well, you know, everybody's grandmother was your grandmother when I was growing up, and as long as you. You know, you paid attention and you would help. And I, I remember when in the fish camp, grandmother brought my friend and, and myself into the smokehouse. And they had they had a fish that was just put in, the salmon that was in the middle, and the, the finished salmon that was ready to come out on the end. And they they would only tell you once. They said you can eat all you want, but if you waste one piece, you are never welcomed in the smokehouses again. So they didn't waste time. And they told would tell the children when they get too loud, your children are to be seen but not heard. And just like that, they never stopped teaching. It was wish I could remember more from a long time ago, but. Yeah, I was lucky that they treated, you know, 
whatever friend I had, their their grandparents were were mine. It just um learned how to get bark off the cedar tree and so you don't kill the cedar tree from my friend's grandmother. I never forgot it when my wife wanted to go out and get, get some bark. She was surprised I told her I know how to do it. And so we would we went out and got it. But just things like that. Just we just try not to um leave a footprint when when we left our sites or any camp areas. Oh, I just wanted to add that. Thank you. Thank you. It's very insightful. So talking of leaving a footprint, I think perhaps the last thing I want to talk about is um, mind tailings and and the way that because some some of these mines, so there are some I guess mines that people want to build, and there are some mines that people have already built, right? And I, I was reading on your website about a tailings dam and what that is and what that does and, and what that might mean for protecting the ecosystem. Um, so can you explain what a tailings dam is and what a tailings dam failure is? I just, what I learned a little bit on um, at a meeting up in Anchorage on the uh, forum on the Alaska environment and the ad scientists there that, that were speaking and this is a few years ago now, and they talked about every mine that's in place is poisoning the rivers to this day, and it will always poison because it doesn't stop bleeding out of there wherever they were mining. And that was very interesting. And, and they had just started to um, do some water sampling. And we were trying to do that, and this year we were finally able to do something with that. We got to start with with guide there, and looking forward to get water samples come fall at moose hunting time, and we'll have to see how many he would like to have this time. <laughs> I just know, no, it's not good. It's poisonous. The water used to be that beautiful bluish glacier water coming down through the river there. I'm not seeing that anymore. So when I want to get fresh water for coffee, I'll I'll go to the side mountain where I know it's clean and coming coming off the mountain. So things like that we have to watch out for. You know, specifically to a tailings dam, that's just the containment structure for yeah. a tailings dump. They may call them tailings disposal facilities or storage facilities, but they're never coming back for them. It's it's a dump. It's uh, permitted just as any municipal landfill would be. Uh, British Columbia tends to use what they call subaqueous tailings disposable. They need to keep oxygen from the tailings because otherwise they're going to oxidize. They're going to create acid mine drainage, dissolve all of these heavy metals into the salmon streams and basically a large risk, a large threat. Um we live in a rainforest, so that water balance is very critical, and it's almost impossible to do in a time of climate change. They're wanting to maintain three meters of water on top of these tailings in perpetuity. I mean, at what point in perpetuity does any certainty of your predictions completely break down? Yeah. <laughs> and they require massive amounts of water treatment. Uh, and it's not just the tailings, it's the waste rock. In, in Louis Unic River, 
it's not just the Bruce Jack, but now they're permitting the SK Creek and open pit and already permitted, but not yet built is the KSM, which would be one of the top five largest open pits in the world. Wow. On a small watershed with incredibly low hardness of water, meaning it cannot absorb any kind of change of pH or acid um, and is home to, you know, uh, the spawning and rearing grounds and genetic diversity of uh, Pacific salmon. And in the long run, the only way we're going to keep salmon from extinction, as well as Kirby says, trying to help, you know, change our our attitude with this world but we have to maintain that genetic diversity that's spawn in all of those little tiny streams throughout the coast and far into british columbia um we need that genetic diversity salmon are incredibly resilient but we also can't you know completely ignore our part in disrupting the natural cycles here um and as they pointed out, they are incredibly disruptive. I did, you know, want to say that, you know, Louie mentioned how they're not listen. He's not listened to. Mm-hmm. And that story can be multiplied in every community and tribe throughout the Pacific Northwest and probably the entire United States, if not yeah. the world. Uh, but that's what we're trying to remedy here trying to let's all get together let's ignore that border we find out when in these meetings like our summit that we're actually related some of us are related to one another uh and and look at this in the big picture holistic way you have to look at big things like climate change and natural ecosystems and complex mining that just gets bigger and bigger just due to economy of scale they mined the good stuff a long time ago they took the chocolate chips out of the chocolate chip cookie now they're going after the baking soda and that creates exponential more waste right yeah because there's less of the stuff they're looking for and more of the waste wow yeah i've certainly um spent some time around some abandoned mines in alaska and it's it's wild to see this massive intrusion and then abandonment and just sort of a complete sort of abnegation of the responsibility for the damage that is done. I look at the climax molybdenum mine in Leadville, Colorado. It's a good you know example. It? Been there too. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you've seen that one. <laughs> I've, raced my, I've raced my bike up there a couple of times. Yeah. I um, used to work there. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. That is a, uh, and the impact that it's had on that town of, sort of the mining, it's all, it's a process that hurts almost everyone apart from the people who own mining companies, right? Like it doesn't benefit as many, as many people as, as it in the long run, it hurts. I think you're going towards benefits and there, there should be equitable benefits, but the benefit, the the first cut of the pie is, is the environment itself. (laughs) Um, They have, it, it not only has to just be maintained and sustained, it has to actually benefit at this point, if we're going to avoid, large-scale collapse and um and uh but there's ways of doing that and part of that is giving indigenous people a strong say of consent the new laws you know uh, canada ratified the uh united nations declaration on the rights of indigenous people bc has implemented that through uh the declaration on the rights of people's act they are supposed to respect you know these traditional territories regardless of the land status of alaska tribes 
Um, they certainly have an obligation to respect the First Nations and the unceded territories of the First Nation people in British Columbia. That's clear by law. Um, and the Supreme Courts have expanded that um, to people that no longer live in Alaska if they still have that direct connection to their traditional territories within. Um, I'm sorry, British Columbia. Um, and so um, we're going to use that to make sure that Louis and everybody is heard and and uh, get that knowledge as part of and not just the knowledge, but the active participation. That's part of the benefit sharing, if indeed anything happens. But at this point, we just need so much more restoration um, before we damage it further, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. So you spoke about this large open pit mine. Um, it's, is there something people can do if, if they want to, I'm guessing it would be optimal for them not to open another massive open pit mine. Is, is there something people could do to help maybe make that a process that, you know, where indigenous people are listened to and not just mining interests? Oh, this indeed is for me and I'll be quick. I think, you know, uh, unfortunately the, the engaging with the process with the recognition that the process process is broken, but engaging it to the maximum extent you can to try to get your word out there and influence decision makers. Um, you got to at least do that. Yeah. I'm sure Kirby has stood the lines out there in British Columbia. I'm sure he can speak to it. Please do Kirby. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you or your listeners haven't heard of, of the term indigenous science, I would like to introduce that. Uh, indigenous science is a distinct, time-tested, and methodological knowledge system that can enhance and complement Western science. Now, I've introduced this many times. Um, I, it, it's by no means did I invent this at all, but um, I've, I've been introduced to it about a year ago, and I've been using it a lot now. In many instances, indigenous science is thousands of years old, whereas Western science in some areas, such as British Columbia, Canada, where we've only, um, you know, been in contact with European settlers for just over 500 years, indigenous science is much, much older. Um, it's as I said earlier, it's it's time tested, and uh, the knowledge is is immense, and um, you know, that alone should give a lot of credence to to the knowledge and, and the science of Indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's an excellent consideration. Um, we had an episode this week, actually, where we spoke about Indigenous medical technologies. And I think it's important to recognize these things as on a par with, uh, yeah, like, European Western technolo medical technologies, right, as opposed to different from um but you know have them on the same level and the same with the science that you mentioned i think that's an excellent point too <laughs> i have to chime in because i that point of view sometimes i have to laugh because what is it at least 65 percent of all pharmaceuticals are derived from natural plants that the indigenous people had full mm -hmm. knowledge <laughs> for yeah. a long time a aspirin, and that right? information wasn't necessary necessarily transferred in the nicest manner often so we yes. do need to acknowledge that <laughs> yeah yeah every time we take an aspirin we're benefiting from indigenous science right indigenous medical technologies 
Yeah, and and those technologies are incredible. The halibut hook is just a prime example. It's it's an incredible study in the morphology of the mouth of a halibut, the habits of a halibut, and they can design the hook um, to target very specifically the size of the halibut, so they're not getting the big breeders and this and that, and and just the amount of of observation adjustment engineering that goes into a halibut hook is in itself very credible the western people when they moved in on the, at least here on the coast they looked at the way uh the clinkite and shimshian people were harvesting fish with with uh, beach traps and 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 beach nets and and whatnot and they copied that fish wheels and they copied that technology but then they took it to the massive extreme and just mm -hmm took everything out of the rivers but they used indigenous technology to do it ironically enough uh so we can turn that around you know we can use that technology to to turn this around and and there's no reason why we shouldn't yeah, that's an excellent point is there anything you each would like to leave our listeners with maybe a place they can find you online a way they can show support and something like that a little bit that i didn't mention was I'm also I'm, I'm Simpson and Clinkett. My grandfather and great grandfather, they came from Hartley Bay when when Matlacatla was built by them in eighteen eighty seven, I believe. And um they they were um boat builders. They sold their rowboats up and down the coast. But yeah, yeah. I couldn't spend enough time with my grandfather. He he was good and just you never stop learning from all of our elders. I just wanted to throw that in there. Thank you. Thank you so much. How about you, Kirby? Anything you'd like to leave people with? I just wanted to leave people with this thought. You know, as I said earlier, um look at look at the habits that you can change that that are the low hanging fruit. And I'd also like them to um, you know, think about um how they can change think about holding your elected officials accountable um i'm not sure what it's like where you're from but you know a lot of our elected officials they like to talk but they don't like to do anything so <laughs> that's universal actions, ac actions speak louder than words hold your elected officials accountable Every time you see them, ask them what they're doing about protecting wild salmon. Thanks. Thank you. Guy, anything from you? Okay, yeah, quickly along the lines of, of what Kirby was saying. I mean, recognize that the metals that are necessary to support our lifestyle are already there. They're in our walls, in our cars, in our computers. The idea that we need more of these metals in our lives is just the idea that we need more stuff in our lives. And that addiction is what's strangling this planet. Um, and so Louis, I mean, uh, sorry, Kirby's, you know, advice is is you know, is, is very strong. But uh, if you can, want to follow along, go to mm -hmm. www.seitc.org, O-R-G, so Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission, S-E-I-T-C. We're just getting started. And so um, 
there should be some incredible stories along the way. One last thing I'd like to say is that we really need to consider the circular economy. Right now, we live in a society where we throw away so many things. You know, I, I, I think about vehicles that go to the junkyard and they're crushed. You know, like we should be taking those vehicles apart, using the parts that we can, instead of just crushing it into this big, massive rock that we're eventually going to need to dismantle again sometime in the future. We should be doing that now. And if there are any good parts in that vehicle, then they should be put back into circulation. Yeah, I think that's an excellent yeah. point. Go they ahead. are elements after all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it, they're already broken down into the elements, right? And we're just yeah. crushing them yeah. back into a, a big rock again. And then we're going to have to take them out of the, into the elements again. Yeah, when, when we run out of stuff to dig out of the ground. It's very sad to think that like the same desire... Uh, a colleague and I spent some time reporting on the civil war in Myanmar last year. And this, that's the same thing. It's people trying to extract rare earth metals and, and it, it's it's people dying and the environment being damaged because of it. And it's, I think Kirby made an excellent point that like, if we don't, you know, those things are already there and guys said it like in our walls and in our computers and things, and, and we could do so much better to use the ones we have rather than consistently damaging people on the planet to dig up more. respectful yeah be respectful thank you so much all of you for giving me some of your afternoon and sharing your time with our listeners i know they would really appreciate it and i do too happy pride from tomboy x we just dropped our pride 24 collection queer founded queer run and creating size and gender inclusive underwear swimwear and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin visit tomboyx.com to shop enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at betmgm signing up and playing is so easy simply sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet when you register with betmgm you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features live betting options and the best daily promotions in the business and with betmgm at your fingertips every play and every game matter more than ever place your money line prop and parlay bets with a king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet betmgm and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. 
Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hello and welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast which only has one button and is edited by Daryl using a 10-year-old Logitech Xbox controller. And that's a submarine joke for those of you who have not been following. Uh, today, I'm joined by Alex and Tom, uh, both of them graduate students in the UC system. And we're talking about this, this really obscene charge of assault that some graduate students are facing uh, after they disrupted an alumni event in San Diego. Hi, Alex and Tom. Do you want to introduce yourselves a little bit as far as you feel comfortable? Hi, James. Sure. Uh, thanks for having us back. Uh, my name is Alex. I'm a graduate student at University of California, San Diego. Um, some of you have been listening since November might um, remember when I uh, first came uh, on the show to tell you about our strike. And I guess we're going to give some, uh, some interesting updates uh, since then. Uh, I'm Tom. I'm also a graduate student at UC San Diego. Um, I'm in uh, uh, pretty advanced in my program. I've been here for a while, um, and I am in a humanities department. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so, I think to start out with, we should just explain. We'll we'll explain what happened in detail at the event in a bit. But can you just explain what these charges that people are facing are and, and how they found out that they have been charged with assault after doing something which was not violent in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the most sort of recent thing that's happened is, is, and we'll talk about the details in a moment, but as James alluded to, um, we held a peaceful protest back in May related to um, a number of violations of our most recent collective bargaining agreement, which I'll also be happy to go into detail yeah. on. Um, and, uh, in response to, uh, what was, um, by all accounts, by what I witnessed by everyone else, uh, that I've talked to was a completely peaceful protest. Um, the university has decided to allege that, uh, 67 graduate students, including by our count 18, who were either not present or not involved, are going to be charged under the student conduct process with committing a physical assault as well as charges for disruption um, and uh, a vague um, uh, assertion that uh, we were threatening the health and safety of others. Um, these are quite serious allegations. They do uh, carry uh, potential sanctions up to um, long-term suspension and expulsion from the university. Right. Yeah. And that's, um, I think people like, the, the exposure for graduate students is is so high, right? Like, if, if you are on the job market, you know, this could set back your progress on, the, on an already very challenging job market. Uh, it, it's suspension or expulsion presumably could have long-term consequences for your employability. And something that, like, I think I spent the better part of eight years at UCSD. Uh, like, it's a, you've invested a lot of time, you get paid like shit. Uh, and if, if you then get nothing out of it, that is potentially devastating. For, for each individual in this, this is absolutely devastating. These are our careers and we've invested, uh, you know, a, a minimum of seven years, at least in humanities, on this, many of us more. Uh, but it's also devastating for the university itself because these students that are being charged are uh, from, from virtually every program on campus and many of them are working in, in very prestigious, high-powered laboratories, uh, have, um, you know, fellowships and scholarships. 
Uh, so, so this is really a bad look for the university as well to, you know, potentially have 67 graduate students yeah. under these charges. Yeah, totally. Uh, 67. It's funny. I've been 68. We could have, uh, it's, it's, it's when I like, I don't know when I hear 68, obviously I think of like 1968 and, uh, it's remarkable. This is a university uh, at one point, someone self-immolated at UCSD in, in protest oh, yes. of Vietnam war. And, uh, now we are like, it had a, a reputation for radicalism and now here we are charging people for walking onto a stage and shouting. Do you want to, talk about the, the walking onto a stage and shouting can you maybe give us an account of of the events and then uh we'll talk about maybe how those have been represented in the process if that makes sense yeah sure um so this particular protest uh took place at um an award ceremony uh very um sort of uh um, a fancy sort of annual event that the university hosts where they uh, give uh, awards to various alumni and kind of as a sort of uh, fundraising opportunity as well. Um, and uh, what uh, the protest took the form of was um, that uh, a number of um, graduate student workers uh, walked on stage um, uninvited and began uh, giving speeches and holding signs demonstrating um, the ways in which, uh, and informing the audience of the ways in which that um, our contracts have not been upheld since we signed them in December, um, the ways in which uh, the university is circumventing some of the raises that we were promised for our research and teaching, um, and the ways it is trying to sort of um, prevent um, those things from being resolved in the sort of normal channels that you go through with these sort of uh, these sort of union and, and contract administration things. Um, and that's been ongoing for, I suppose, six months now with um, relatively little process. Um, so that demonstration uh, took place uh, about up until the time that uh, some local police officers arrived. And at that time, the demonstration uh, was uh, fully compliant with those orders. And the um, police officers noted such in their dispatch logs, which I was able to retrieve from the city. Um, and then after that, the demonstration continued outside of the uh, the venue of the event where uh, people were still able to, um, you know, make a, a decent amount of noise and, and raise uh, their grievances, um, despite the walls uh, separating the group from uh, the alumni inside. And it certainly did get some attention since we were in touch after that with um, people who were sort of relatively high up in a number of university and uh, alumni centric offices um and who were um surprised to hear of the things that we were alleging and um wanted to hear more and be able to raise those issues further up into the university so um these charges certainly did sort of come as a shock given that at first um a lot of people at the event seemed uh receptive um in a way uh though certainly not all but some were certainly receptive uh to to uh <laughs> our, our concerns and and what we had to say yeah i'll add a couple of interesting details uh, there. And the first one is uh, that the immediate uh, uh, impetus for this event was actually the, the news that uh, Chancellor Brittany Coleslaw was in attendance. And uh, this was uh, only a week or two after it had become public knowledge that he had received a $500,000 raise uh, as an effort to keep him in the university, which raises his salary to uh, more than a million dollars, and I think makes him the fourth highest paid uh, uh, 
university chancellor or, or president or dean in the United States. So we presented him with an award for uh, UCSD's most overpaid worker. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that was sort of our, our, uh, our rationale for, for doing this specific event. Um, the other thing is, is that when the police arrived, they actually gave no verbal orders for us to clear out. Um, we, uh, as soon as we saw them, we peacefully started to leave the stage. Um, and they stood there as well. No arrests were made, uh, no interviews were done, no orders were shouted. Uh, they remained on, on site uh, for the duration as we stood outside picketing. Um, there were no reinforcements, there were no SWAT teams, um, it was just one or two squad cars. The police typically are, are known for having outsized responses to minor problems, um, but the fact that they did not have any kind of uh, aggressive response to this uh, indicates to us that they were aware that it was entirely peaceful events. Yeah, and the dispatch logs don't show them having any concerns about violence or responding to to any like real violence, them seeing any violence and responding to it, right? Yeah, so I was able to grab those and the um, yeah. It's it's difficult to say because it looks like maybe two people called nine one one, even though yeah. the, it, 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 it was three. Did. It was three. Yeah, two, yeah, two of them said no violence. Yeah, two said there was no violence. The a third person said they had secondhand reports that we had pushed the chancellor off the stage, which we have video of that very definitely not happening. Uh, he stood next to the graduate students and then of his own initiative turned and walked off the stage. So the only allegation that's documented uh, in real time of any violence occurring was one admittedly secondhand and two is disproven um, conclusively by the available video. Right. And that video is online, right? Like it's been posted. Yeah, it's easy to find. There's that particular one that really easily disproves it. There's a Vimeo link for the the union uploaded it. uh, So I can can drop that in the show notes. I can send that to you. Yeah, excellent. We'll make sure we do that. And likewise, the the PRA uh, that's publicly available, folks can go see it. Um, All San Diego PRAs are publicly available. We have like a lot of evidence that no one was violently assaulted. What is the university alleging that was done, I guess? That they're claiming what did they claim the student workers did well the closest thing that we can find so in in a um you know in in the documentation that each uh person was given about the charges that they face uh the closest thing we can find to a description that seems to um imply assault was that um someone claimed to have seen the chancellor uh the word they used was bumped um which doesn't even necessarily imply intentionality in my mind um, and, and really the, the way that I read that sentence is that, you know, possibly the stage was a little crowded and, and someone might've bumped into him and, but I don't even recall ever seeing that happen. I haven't talked to anyone who recalls seeing that happen, um, who, anyone who was in our group or not. Um, but other than that, um, the, the rest of the report is really just full of descriptions of how they, they, haven't i don't even think they talked to anyone who said they were scared of us they just said people might have been scared of us it's very strange the report re- reads like a propaganda from the class war it's pearl clutching of the highest order uh some champagne glasses were broken uh <laughs> the event itself cost over a hundred thousand dollars to set up with many different caterers and vendors uh somebody flew all the way from switzerland 
for the event. And I'm actually using our made up quotes from the report. Um, you know, and, and, and during the event itself, it's ironic because uh, I was at the event, uh, as, as were, you know, a indeterminate amount of other graduate students. And, and we actually were assaulted by members of the crowd who would come up and put their arms on our, or their hands on our shoulders and tell us, this is why people hate unions. And, you know, <laughs> hey, uh, I, I brought my, my 90 year old grandmother to this and I have some, you know, uh, $50 million grant and I'm being honored for this. That the people thumping my chest, people thumping other people's chest, sticking fingers in our faces, um, and telling us really that we ruined their special night. And our response was, you know, um, I think that our need to pay rent and uh, feed ourselves is a little bit more important than um, your special night at the, uh, at the art museum by the ocean with their glasses of champagne. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like it was even a. All that was happening was that people who had given them money, or who they want them to, who they want to get money from, were being made to feel special. It wasn't as if you even interrupted like a uh, like a, a meeting or a function of the university. And unless we consider the function of the university these days seems to be to to get money and then distribute it to people in positions of power in the university. So, given that, right, that they, like this was a an event, I guess, which reinforced the people who have authority in the university. It's interesting to look, well, it's not interesting, it, it, it's upsetting to look at the nature of the, the process that these 67 people are facing, right? Because it's not, they're, they're not being accused in a court of doing a crime. They're being accused by the university in the university of breaking the conduct rules of the university. So the they university is like, uh, it's all parties apart from the defendant, right? It, it's a judge, it's a jury, it, it's a prosecuting lawyer. Um, and the executioner. So can you, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, I'll just say something about that. Um, you know, this, this was um, very much calculated on the part of the university to charge us as, as under the student conduct violation, <laughs> because if they're charging us as students, they're not charging us as workers. If we had workers, uh, we would have union representation in our meetings. It would be you know, part of, of that litigation process. But as, as students, um, the, 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 the context of the labor fight that uh, was the result natural for the entire event is is relevant and it can be divorced from that and, and treated um, under you know the music codes that are meant to uh, 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 charge undergraduates who are, are drinking in their dorms or are sexually harassing their peers in their class. This is just not something that is, in my view, appropriate at all to apply to a, a labor dispute, which is what this was. Yeah, like, I think the only time I've been party to these proceedings is when an undergraduate did physically assault someone who I was teaching with. But, like, it, it's not a normal procedure by any means. And certainly to use against grad students who are very clearly taking part in a labor action, I think it, it's very telling that the university is kind of using one system to circumvent the fair bargaining and the unfair labor practices and all the the things that they seem really like they seem almost like inexplicably committed to to not uh sticking to the contract even though they got a contract that was largely favorable to them and not as much as as people had wanted at the start of the strike so how does it work from here like what what does this process look like well, to start with, each of us um, has uh, an individual meeting with a, a representative of the university. Um, 
And at that meeting, we essentially have the response, the, the, the option to either accept responsibility for all the charges against us, um, or to, um, say that we do not accept that responsibility and want to continue the process forward at, at which point they will, um, they will schedule or attempt to schedule, um, a, a conduct review board meeting where, uh, I believe three representatives from uh, who have been sort of predetermined to serve on these conduct review boards will uh, judge uh, the, the weight of the evidence um, uh, in a preponderance of the evidence standard. And uh, at that point, then the Office of Student Conduct, if, if you are found responsible, I believe that office is then what uh, decides uh, what the sanctions are um, that you will face. Um, so this, this is uh, a bit of an unprecedented process, at least for us. Um, we actually, I believe, and I want to clarify some numbers, I think I said 67 graduate students uh, earlier. Um, there were actually 59 from this event who were charged. Um, and that 67 comes from eight who were charged for a protest related to um, the university's attempt to fire workers for striking, which is still ongoing. Um, that protest took place in January. And there, that uh, conduct process for those eight workers has not yet resolved. Uh, as we speak oh, wow. today on June 20th. So it's not clear how they're going to manage the logistics of trying to charge six, or, uh, 59 uh, workers in a single case. Um, it could, assuming they follow their entire procedures by the book and don't dismiss any charges, it could take more than a year to resolve the situation. Jesus. And for people who have, uh, like, they're either defending or advancing to candidacy or... Um... These these are all things you can do within grad school. For people who aren't familiar, where you where you sort of level up your grad student status, I guess. Um, <laughs> are people able to do that? Yeah, luckily, um, this does not restrict your academic advancement. It can potentially, if it goes from quarter to quarter, they can potentially put, I believe, holds on registration. But I think that's only if you don't sort of uh, carry out your sanctions, uh, assuming your sanction is not suspension. I could be a time correct me if I'm wrong on that. But what still could be the case is that you could, you know, and it could well be the case for me that I defend before the conclusion of this process, but um, it could still end up as something that would be on a, uh, a conduct record that could be released um, in certain employment situations. So um, even if uh, you are able to uh, escape um, the process, uh, so to speak, um, it is not necessarily... Um, not going to follow you um, after that point. I'll add that um, by all indicators um, from those who have already had their first meeting, I'm asking, you know, do you accept responsibility? And of course, they've said, no, we deny all, all, all allegations against us. Yeah. Uh, but um, it, it seems as if the Office of Student Conduct is, is quite overwhelmed by this. Uh, people have been trying to schedule meetings, have not gotten responses. From the office, uh, the office then gets back to them a week or two later with, you know, only one or two options. Uh, the, the really, uh, calculated evil of this is that these charges dropped on the very last day of the quarter, which means that, uh, at least in, in the arts and humanities, um, most of us are, are going out of town or are, uh, uh conducting research or are on, on fellowships, uh, so we're not around to uh, respond to these. And I think that that was a, a decision that was purposefully made, that, you know, to, to 
process, just the sheer number of students involved in this is staggering. And I, I think that the, um, the office development offices are really struggling. The other thing that I will say is uh, we have it uh, from informal channels that this is something that is being uh, directed from the very top, which is to say from the chancellor's office. But uh, this is not something that uh, uh, you know, impartial observers you know, uh, made, but something that the chancellor himself uh, is directing. Uh, yeah, that, that makes sense, given the chancellor was there. It also, like... It's just put me in mind of 2010 when I don't think either of you were at UCSD, but for those of us who were, and there's a film about it actually called Dear White People. Um, but there, there was a, a a party where people wore blackface uh, and this happened, uh, I think, through a fraternity that was associated with the university. And getting the university to do anything disciplinary about that required hundreds if not thousands of people to go on strike, to march, to occupy the Chancellor's complex and, and to like physically demand action for weeks and weeks, if not months, um, from the Chancellor's system, right? Like, and, and still, it was an extremely unsatisfactory process. The resolution was, was extremely unsatisfactory, but I guess uh, that... The there's a contemporaneous uh, incident happening right now. I don't know all the details, but uh, it appears to an individual... Uh, was uh, video or videotaped himself um, progressing, uh, screening with his professor on it and making new comments um, and, and a whole variety of, of really misogynistic, creepy behavior. Uh, and apparently, this is his, his third restraining order that he's received. But as far as the university is concerned, this is still a case that's, that's moving through it. Um, it doesn't appear to have had any immediate sanctions. Uh, we've heard stories of sexual assaults as you said, uh, of, of racist um, harassment that have, have really gone nowhere. I actually reported a student uh, last summer for uh, very threatening behavior, um, and the very next quarter he was in my class. So. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's, yeah, the only thing that sort of they jump to defend is capital, I guess, or, or the, in this case, the sort of administrators of the university. And so this this could potentially play out for months. What's the and it seems like everyone has accepting responsibility is such a strange word because uh, like the, what's what happened is what's at question really, not who's responsible for it so much, right? Like you can accept responsibility for doing what was a protected First Amendment activity, but like you obviously can't accept responsibility for assault if you didn't assault somebody, and um, but. Given that if, no one, if, if sixty-seven students had assaulted Chancellor Freddie Post, uh, uh, you, you would think that it would have made national news. Yeah, yeah. that would have been. Uh, yeah, that would have been something. I think. Yeah, I that's like a beat down, but that didn't happen. So, what's the plan for defense? I guess is each case like an individual case. Can they mount a? Can people mount a joint defense like the J twenty one people did in DC? do we know yet like how does this work i'm not sure we we entirely know yet i think the university can make the decision to consolidate cases that share evidence i don't believe they've made that determination yet i yeah. think what they are trying to do now and and this sort of leads into another part that that it, i think represents a degree of um sort of apathy bordering cruel bordering on cruelty of this process yeah. is that uh, we've identified at least 18 um, graduate students who 
were either not physically present at all or had merely registered for the event without even knowing that this would take place. Um, and those people have all been charged with the exact same things that everyone who was intentionally part of the protest has been. So we think that we're at the individual stage where they are trying to kind of, they know that they, 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 they're well aware that they caught a bunch of people that had no involvement in this. Um, but we think that we are using really these individual meetings to figure out who those people are uh, to the best of their ability. Um, and, and perhaps further down the line, they may decide to try to consolidate these cases to expedite the process. But mm -hmm. um, it's, it's hard to say for sure. Um, the, again, this, the, the important aspect of this process is the fact that almost every element of it and every step and how that is carried out is entirely at the discretion of a handful of university administrators. Um, there's no a, real appeal outside of the system. There's no real accountability outside of the system. Um, so they can simply implement these things, um, you know, as as they see fit. I mean, this there was uh, um, uh, in so when this eventually first broke, there were some um, former graduate students who who run an old uh, radical uh, UC Twitter account who shared some mm -hmm. write-ups from uh, cases of uh, sit-ins uh, that were charged under the same process, I believe at Berkeley a couple of years ago. Um, and in that one, the uh, the administrators at, at the Berkeley campus actually went as far as to edit the code of conduct during the process. Surely you're not responsible for like ex post facto edits of the code of conduct or were they? They were. Jesus um, well, this Christ. was primarily in in you know in all fairness, if they deserve yeah. any, this was that that particular incident was kind of a logistical thing. So it was, um, it was whether or not uh, certain aspects of the process could be waived or could be could be extended. The deadline could be extended, okay. and someone who didn't have the authority to extend it did. Yeah. And when they were called on that, they edited the code of conduct after the fact to say that <laughs> okay, a designee can extend the deadline for, you know, how this process proceeds. So it wasn't that they invented a rule to charge someone under, but they did uh, edit their own due process as they went along. Right. Yeah. So you're, you might be up against a moving target, so to speak. Did they identify everybody? Like, did, because I'm presuming people didn't use their legal names to register. Or like, how were they able to identify some of the people, clearly the people who were just there as undergraduate alumni and happened to be graduate students probably did use their real names. But uh, do you know how else they identified people? Um, well, I think they did. You know, some people did. Um, I, I assume that I was caught with my uh, real name on the registration. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that was simply because, I, you know, some, some people decided um, to use different names um, I, uh, decided after weighing the pros and cons of that, I decided yeah. that it was, I, you know, I, I figured that there might be, it might be a worse situation if that was, mm -hmm. you know, unraveled. Um, and I didn't think that obviously I had no plans of assaulting someone and I did not assault anyone. So yeah. I had no reason to expect that perhaps I needed to take that level of precaution with this kind of a peaceful, um, uh, protest action. Um, but I, we believe that they primarily, um, got, uh, the names of uh, who did um, who 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 they decided to charge from simply registration lists. But again, the fact and there was a sign in at this event where you picked up a name tag and you know it was kind yeah. of a gate you couldn't really get in. 
without doing yeah. that. Um, but they still gave charges to people who actually we know for a fact were not physically present and have been able to prove that they were not physically present. So it doesn't seem that they even bothered to consult, at least initially, the actual sign-in list of people who actually showed up and checked in, um, which is also a bit strange. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, 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 it seems to be a, a very haphazard process so far right. there are people who have been charged who weren't there there are people who were there who haven't you know necessarily been identified at this point in time so it's 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 a little bit of a mystery yeah and we'd love we'd love to find out too because you know if they for some uh, for some reason were able to determine using uh union lists that obviously would be a, a massive unfair labor practice yeah yeah and already it seems like an unfair labor practice and a violation of like First Amendment rights and protected First Amendment speech. And Jesus, it, it it's yeah, it just seems that they're sort of half-assing this thing, which could have devastating consequences for some people. And, and they they've they've just kind of thrown a wide net and, and uh, sort of I guess trying to work out after the fact what to do with this. Has it had like a chilling effect? On, on campus organizing, on protesting their ongoing contract violations? No, not at all. <laughs> you can't scare us. We're sticking to the union. Um, you know, ironically, uh, uh, as, as many of your listeners are probably aware from listening to earlier episodes of your podcast, you know, there have been a lot of tension on campus between uh, the, uh, the arts, humanities, social sciences, and the STEM, uh, you know, dating back to the strike and, and even before. Um, and, and it had actually gotten uh, substantially worse uh, in the last couple of months uh, based on the um, the vacancy elections that were held in April. Uh, this, ironically, uh, uh, seems to be a huge miscalculation on the part of the university because uh, a lot of those issues, although they haven't gone away, have been absolutely subsumed and the, uh, you know, the injury to one is an injury to all mentality. Um, so there, there is a, a great amount of solidarity, but going into the summer, I don't think any work around campus really expected. <laughs> yeah, that's excellent. That's great to hear. So talking of solidarity, I guess, what can people do to help? Like, it, it seems like, do you have a legal defense fund? I don't know if you're even allowed to have a lawyer. Is, is there something they can sign? Is there someone they can write to? Yeah, Should they join? Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so, so there is a petition uh, circulating okay. around for, uh, for current students, faculty, alumni, and community members. Uh, the address for that is uh, bit.ly slash UCSD drop the charges. One word. All lowercase. All lowercase. Yeah. Anything else? Like, are you... Would you plan, like, marches and, and pickets and stuff as the process continues that people could join? Yeah, definitely. And and if um, if you sign that petition, that's uh, one way we're, we're so the petition sort of has the dual goal of of sort of getting, um, you know, demonstrating uh, to the administration that there's a wide level of awareness of this issue and concern over this issue, um, but also to make sure that anyone who wants to be involved um, in any way that they're able uh, to support us will um, be able to be kept in the loop. So if you um, use an email the address that you actually read uh, when you sign the petition, you will certainly hear about um, any actions that we have. Um, we are still very much in the early planning stages, as as um, Tom alluded to earlier, there is, um, you know, a certain as there appears to be a certain aspect of strategizing here where uh, the, the charges were given 
uh, right at the point where campus becomes the least populated potentially yeah. of any time throughout the whole year, except perhaps Christmas. Um, but, you know, there's still plenty of graduate students here. Uh, they are all, um, you know, just as shocked as we are uh, to see this unfolding. Um, so I think we can definitely plan uh, for, uh, you know, some kind of actions to take place this summer. Nice. Yeah. And maybe we'll get some more student conduct violations out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'd be good if alumni, if, if people are alumni, like I know a decent number of UC alumni listen and they reached out when we talked about the strike. Like it would be great if those people could leverage that status because uh, the, the UC goes hard on alumni for donations. And they've stopped calling me now. Uh, they know I'm poor, but uh, <laughs> I think those those of you who the UC is still calling for donations, you know, that would be a good time to raise this, or you know, you could email or or whatever, email the alumni office. Um, but yeah, it's this is obscene and ridiculous, and obviously like a continuation of union busting and their fundamental refusal to acknowledge student workers as workers, apparently, and and only see people as students. And so, is there anything else you want? people to know about this you anything else you'd like people to do to show solidarity before we wrap up um no, I, th I think the big thing is just you know sign the petition that'll help you mm -hmm. you know kind of stay in the loop especially if you're uh kind of in the local area um and and are able to uh um come out and join us in solidarity for any protests um uh, yeah again if you're a uc alum of of any kind certainly uh make your thoughts known to uh ucsd um because apart from I would say the the two people, the two groups of people who have the most power to act in in decent numbers in the situation are professors and alumni. Um, and oh, yeah. and so that would be yeah, like what you said, that's a huge, mm -hmm. um, a huge uh, would be a huge point of support. Um, yeah. Other than that, I think just um, the, the way you know I've I've been here for um, almost six full years now, um, and you know, I've, four of those were without a union. I'm a student researcher, so our union is brand new. And you can go back to the November episode to hear that whole story. Um, but my point is that, you know, um, before we had this kind of um, network and, and, and this kind of collective organization to protect our rights, a lot of, you know, I, I've seen a lot of friends who through no fault of their own uh, ended up in some kind of, you know, one-sided process where it's them versus the bureaucracy, whether that's you know, they're a bad relationship with their professor or, or you know, any number of things that might have come up along the way, um, health issues leading to lower, you know, not, not not finishing work on time and, you know, getting on the bad side of advisors or anything like that. You know, it is very easy in the status quo of the way the large university works to fall through the cracks and to have a bureaucracy act in secrecy to just simply kind of remove you without anyone really saying a word. So mm -hmm. I think the most important thing is to keep eyes on this, to make sure the university knows that people are watching, um, that they can try to um, bring this process against us, but it is not going to be a pleasant experience because, you know, the public and and the 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 workers here and the community here are going to be watching and they're going to be supporting us. So I think just just keep keep an eye on the situation if you can, if it's something um, that that you're interested in and able to do, um, and that that's really the biggest way I think um, to support us. I will also say that uh, if you are a uh, UC admin, um, either statewide or in UC San Diego, um, the easiest way to prevent future alumni or events from being disrupted is to actually honor the contract. <laughs> yes, that would be yeah. a fantastic idea.
Yeah, I do know several uh, professors listen, so it's time to do something. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, yeah, they, hopefully they will do something in solidarity, but I, I know a few of them listen and have reached out before. Well, thank you very much. I'm sorry this shit is happening to you. Uh, we will keep people updated as the long process continues, but yeah, I hope uh, I hope you can enjoy your summer without teaching a little bit, without this hanging over you. We'll try. It's uh, that's kind yeah. of my motivation. Is they, you know, they're using it as a little bit of a psychological warfare in terms of labor organizing. So I will just simply choose not to let it bother me at least as much as I can. Yeah. Same. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, James. Thank you. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that now, more than ever, is about things falling apart. It's been roughly one year since the Dobbs decision has annihilated what was left of the protection for legal abortions in this country, and things have gotten enormously worse in ways that most people are essentially attempting to ignore or hide from. Um, there are, however, a lot of people who cannot essentially run from the absolute horror that has been unleashed in this country. And yeah, I'm going to be talking today and tomorrow with one of those people who is Crystal, who is a, uh, has, has, has the triple crown of abortion work of being an abortion worker, a union organizer, and on the, uh, on the board of an abortion fund. 
uh yeah welcome to the show crystal and i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) you're sorry (laughs) (laughs) thank you um thank you so much mia it's really nice to be here again um i had a lot of fun last time and it's nice to be talking to you again, even though I only have really horrible yeah. things to say for the most part. <laughs> um, though there are some good things, but yeah. um, it's it's mostly really awful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I guess I guess that's where I want to start is it's – well, okay. I think I'm, – I'm pretty sure – so the day this is coming out, it's going to be, I think, two days before the anniversary of Dobbs. And I wanted to, I guess, first just ask what it's been like emotionally – before we get to uh, the sort of like more material consequences of it, if that's all right. Yeah. So um, as an abortion worker, this has been an incredibly difficult year. And that's that's with the context that things were not good before yeah. last June 24th, um, 2020 to uh, things were not good before then. So, you know, we were we were really running up against this 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 impending decision that we knew was going to happen and then it ended up happening and then it was really horrible and honestly it's been horrible every single day since and it just gets more horrible every single week and um that's you know I I sound so negative saying that I know but I I just know that I'm saying that knowing that there's so many amazing people who are doing like abortion advocacy and abortion care work and offering abortion services and practical support for abortion. Um, and it has just been a, an incredibly heavy year for us. Um, we've we've seen we've all witnessed a lot in the last year and we're all carrying a lot. And it's 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 just hard. And I'm yeah. really grateful for everyone that I, I work with and that I'm in community with, but it's, it's been traumatizing. Um, I know that, you know, it's really easy to say, I think like, oh, you know, this is traumatic and that's traumatic, but, um, I don't know what else, what other word to use to, to having, to having had witnessed everything that we've witnessed in the last year and to know that there's no end in sight. It is incredibly traumatic. It's like a national trauma. We're all sharing it together. Yeah. Okay. I, I guess we should get into sort of what the things that you've been seeing have looked like. And I think like one of the best ways to do this, I think is by just talking about like what the process is like of trying to get someone an abortion because it's gotten so much harder and so much more dangerous very rapidly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, things have changed a lot in the last year because, you know, if we're, if we're starting from when things really hit the fan, June 24th, uh, 2022, even though things were getting worse before that, because, you know, for example, um, there was the, the ban, um, in Texas that started on September 1st in, in, in 2021. So that, you know, things I saw a lot in my head, if I can point, like, when did I really know that we were, we were fucked and we were going to, like, we were going to see the worst outcome. Um, I would say on September 1st, 2021, but um, we saw the initial trigger bans go into effect immediately after the Dobbs decision. Uh, so, you know, like for example, Texas, the bans went into effect immediately. There were other states that it was a little bit more delayed, like for example, Ohio. And then there's also been a lot of back and forth because um, 
some states in which there have been bans, now those are currently paused and they're being worked through the legal system and other are new bans. There's pretty much been a new ban, it feels like pretty much every week, to the point where I know that I just named a couple of states just now. And just to be cautious, I just want to say that, you know, look, you can go to like abortionfinder.org or I need an A.com and like look up your state to see, you know, if you have access in your state, it changes so frequently that you really do have to kind of rely on those reliable websites like Abortion Finder and I Need an A to really make sure that you're up to date. So, you know, don't like if I mention a state, you know, I'm just it might have been there might have been something in effect months ago and I'm just like alluding to it. So just definitely rely on those resources that exist to see what's up to date now. But yeah, things have been incredibly um, back and forth for a lot of states in the last year. And it's it's just there are holes in access. There are deserts in access that just keep widening and widening and widening. The most devastating being um, recently. This this was just this was a really bad day um, for for me and and a lot of my coworkers when um, there was the vote in Florida and and uh, the Florida ban is not yet in effect, but will eventually be going into effect. Um, and and that was really like one of the last places that you could access an abortion in the Southeast. So now when you look at a map, which I do a lot, I, I, I now have to look at a map every single day for work um, and look at like, you know, individual state maps and like I'm on Google Maps constantly. Um, but there, there, there are places where you have no choice but to travel to get an abortion or access um, abortion services online if that is possible for you. And, you know, there there are resources available where if you, as an individual, need an abortion and you keep looking and you search and you reach out to people, those resources are out there. You know, so practical support groups exist. Funding exists. Um Clinics and service providers will bend over backwards to get you to your appointment and help you access these services. So, you know, there is help out there, but it is, it's really difficult and it's, it takes a lot of work to access an appointment. Um, so everything's, it just, it, it takes longer to get to an appointment. It takes you have to travel further. You end up paying so much more money. Like everything is just so much more expensive than it was a year ago because now you're not just paying, you know, for the procedure cost and then maybe like a little bit of gas money to the appointment. You're having to figure out plane tickets, hotels, um, gas money for whatever, just like really long distances. I have, I've seen patients driving 12 hours to get to Jesus. an appointment. Yeah. And and I can talk more about like what that process looks like too, yeah. but I guess I just wanted to give like a general overview of it's just getting harder to access, longer distances traveling, and um, and and more expensive. And luckily, there is people, th there are people there to help, and there is support, but it it, it requires a, a ton of work, a ton, a ton of work, um, in order to make sure that people are getting the healthcare that they need. Yeah, and and I guess, well, okay, two things. One, I want to I want to start the abortion fund plug like right here because you know yeah. As, <laughs> yeah as as the cost of this increases, that means you know like abortion funds need more money in order mm -hmm. to be able to keep doing this because every dollar that they don't have 
is, you know, potentially is like, not even potentially like is another person who's not going to be able to get an abortion. And, yeah. Every, every dollar matters. Yeah. And, um, and I know that I, I feel like a lot of leftists sometimes get a little tired of hearing about, Oh, donate to your abortion fund, donate to an abortion fund because like, they're like, Oh, this, this is not radical, but abortion funds are the only way in which abortions are happening right now because yeah. it, it 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 costs like you might have to spend like two thousand to three thousand dollars on a person sometimes in order to make sure that they get health care and that's just one person so the only reason that abortions are still happening is because one people are putting that work in to make sure that they happen and and like you know those people are amazing and yeah. also Pay, like people seeking healthcare are amazing. They're incredibly brave to be doing what they're doing, to be working so hard to get healthcare, to be navigating all of these obstacles. That you have to be like that's a you have to be strong to do that. Um, that's an incredibly brave thing to do. Um, ha- having to fly in an airplane if you've never flown before to, to access healthcare that you know you need. Like you're you're being really strong and you're being amazing, but um, you don't you shouldn't have to do that. And yeah. so it's a lot of money. So thank God that the money is there because if the money wasn't there, then people would not be able to be helped. So I know that like, you know, oh, donate to abortion fund, donate to an abortion fund. But really, like if you want people to continue to get abortions now, not just waiting until like November in an election, yeah. then you need to make sure that the money is there for people to do that because it is expensive. Yeah, and we're talking something like two or three thousand dollars, right? Like, can, like, can can you person listening to this? Could you right now spend three thousand dollars on something and be fine, right? And the answer is probably not. But and you know, and, and there's a and there are like a lot of people in this country who need abortions who are like way less well off than you are. Like that is a shit ton of like that 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 is a lot of money for me, like podcaster. Um, that is you know a crippling amount of money for a lot of the people who need this and I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's something really bleak about the way our society is structured where your freedom and your bodily autonomy are dependent on having money, but that's basically where we're at, right? Like that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the way the system works right now. And yeah, and there's a part of me that like yeah. doesn't want to lean in and like, I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm a socialist. I don't want to be like, oh, you know, money, money, money. But like, that is the only reason people are getting healthcare is because there is money available and people are banding together to pool that money to make it available to people who need it. So I'm just like, thank God. <laughs> like, I'm so glad because otherwise I would not be able to get people to their appointments. And I can like talk out that process too. Like, you know, what does it look like now? Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, let, let's actually go through this. Yeah, I want to start off with like what it what I was when I started. So I've been working in abortion care for six years now. Um, and when I started, I was working in a call center and I would schedule appointments. So I would get a call and I'd collect information and I would book the appointment and I'd say, uh you know, thank you um, for, you know, for reaching out to us for your services and we will see you at your appointment. And, you know, the, the calls were long because, you know, we'd have to work out financial assistance. And then also uh, abortion care is often just like a really intimate type of healthcare yeah. to be accessing. So there's a lot of factors sometimes to discuss with the person that was accessing services. Um, and it can be really complicated with all of those factors. So, you know, like it's always been um, pretty labor intensive to schedule someone sometimes, but it was a it was a fairly you know 
fairly short phone call for the most part, most of the time. And then you just get somebody scheduled and then you move on and you schedule someone else. And that was six years ago for me. And, um, and I'm not saying that more difficult situations didn't come up because of course, abortion access was not good six years ago either. But the way in which it's changed is so marked. And I feel like there's so many people have witnesses where it went from, from that to it, it taking weeks to work with one individual to get them to an appointment because there is no clinic within eight hours driving distance to them. Um, and so the whole intake process and the whole just like getting the funds together, I guess I'll just walk you through it because like yeah. I just, I, I don't even know Let's how else do. to relate. So Let's say just like hypothetically, you know, you're an individual who is living in a banned state um, and they're the closest actual brick and mortar abortion clinic to you is nine hours away, which is the situation for so many people that I talk to and that are living in the United States. And let's say you don't have a car and you have children and um, you don't want everybody to know your business. So you like, you don't want everybody in your family knowing that you need an abortion um, and that you're looking for that type of health care. So you're trying to do what you can by yourself and you're Googling and you're looking at different resources. And what, what I witness a lot um, as a healthcare worker helping someone through this process is there's a lot of dead ends when people are trying to find someone that can provide them with those abortion services. They, you know, they're looking for, at the clinics that are close to them and they're seeing that they're nine hours away and they can't get to them. They're looking up flight tickets and they're seeing it's like $800 for there and back and they they can't afford that on top of the procedure cost. And let's just say hypothetically, they're early in the pregnancy and the procedure might cost maybe $400, $500, $600, which is still a lot of money. That's still a lot of money. So I don't want to pretend like that's not. But um, on top of that, then there's also the plane tickets, trying to find a way to the airport. Um, and all of that. And th- th- you, you, they're just reaching a lot of dead ends. Like I can't possibly go here and I can't possibly go here. And okay, like maybe I can go online and order some medication, um, but it might not arrive for several weeks. And what if it doesn't arrive? I mean, that's like a really scary thing to be doing, like knowing you need healthcare and knowing that you're relying on the mail and like hoping that you get your packet um, and that you can trust wherever you're purchasing the medication from. And if you can't even really like, let's say that you're, you're further along um, and you maybe are like 20 weeks and your, your options are incredibly more limited and you're paying a lot more if you don't have insurance coverage, which most people, most people don't. So you're paying like maybe up to, I don't know, like it, it, 2000, 3000, 4000 um, for a procedure. And, and you just need help and you need to ask for help, which is already like a, not a good spot to be in because you're, yeah. you're accessing healthcare and you have no choice but to ask for help and you and shouldn't have to. That's really fucking hard, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think like, on an intellectual level, I think everyone has an experience, which is how hard it is to ask for help for stuff that's like incredibly minor. And then you're doing this for a really intimate like yeah. healthcare decision. and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like super personal, like your decision might be based on like a bunch of factors that are just like really personal for you and you wish you didn't have to tell people or you wish you didn't have to talk to so many people about an appointment um, because, you know, for, for most healthcare appointments, even though healthcare in general is not easy to access, you just call in, you schedule the appointment and maybe 
you have to pay a copay and that's annoying. And then maybe the appointment is four months out and that's awful too. But, um, you know, it's, this just makes everything worse for, for the individual. So let's just say like, you know, they keep trying and they keep trying and they keep looking and, you know, let's say they get to me and I'm somebody who, um, I do, I do scheduling now for, for patients who need to travel and I, um, I help them get financial assistance for the cost of travel and for their appointment. So a lot of times when I get in touch with someone, they've already encountered so many dead ends. And when I am not the dead end, they're filled with so much relief that a lot of times this, this happens almost every day now. Um, someone will get in touch with me and they'll just start crying when I tell them that what, that I can help them. And that is not a good feeling because I feel like maybe in like other types of work or maybe even like before, like maybe years ago, like when somebody was like grateful, it might feel good. Like, Oh, I'm so glad I can help them. But when someone who is like a caregiver, a worker, somebody who needs healthcare and they're scared and they're crying out of relief, it, it, it does not feel good. It makes me feel really horrible because they have already been robbed of their dignity by the time that I talk to them. And I hate that. (laughs) It's just, it's disgusting that they've already been put in the situation that is dehumanizing. And, and I just, it doesn't feel good when they cry in relief. It just does not feel good. So just continuing this, the tale of, uh, you know, this patient accessing an appointment. So, um, so let's say, you know, they they can get an appointment in a clinic. It's not in their state because there's no it's not legal to provide an abortion in their state. So they have to travel um two states away and get to the clinic. So the flight tickets are $800 and the cost of the appointment is 400. So already that's $1200. Um which luckily I am so grateful and glad that I have the ability to arrange financial assistance for that. And I can work with individuals to, to do that. Thank, thank the Lord. Um, like they honestly, I shouldn't, no, not thank the Lord. Thank yeah, fuck these the Lord. people. Fuck the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like thank these people so much. I'm just like so yeah. glad they exist and they're there and that they're such hard workers. Oh my God. But yeah, so that's $1,200 that we can, that we can look into covering. So that way the person pays whatever they are capable of paying, even if that's nothing. Um, because you know, some of these people like, like they're living paycheck to paycheck because they're taking care of their children and like their family is coming first. That is what is happening is they are taking care of their family and they are being a good caregiver. Um, so the, you know, the money is going to food on the table. So that's, that's like $1,200. But then there's a couple other things you have to factor in is like, does this person need a hotel? Because that can be an additional, what, like 100, 200, you know, depending. Um, and does this person have a car? Can they pay for the gas money? Um, especially if they're driving. Because like, let's say they could get to an airport, but the airport is still two hours away. You still need gas money. You still have to park at the airport. You got to pay for airport parking. And then you get on the air, you know, you get on the airplane and you fly over to the state where your appointment is, you get off the airplane, and then there is surge pricing for Lyft and Uber. And let's say the Uber, it could be anywhere from like maybe $50 or $100, depending on what's going on. And that is just more money that needs to be spent. Yeah, the, 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 <laughs> fact, the fact that they're getting hit by fucking Uber surge yeah. pricing is so mm-hmm. monstrous. 
Yeah. It's and just, like airports in general, like, ugh, like getting out of an airport yeah. using a ride share is pretty terrible. But yeah, you got to pay the, that surge pricing. Um, so, and then you get to the clinic and then you have your services, which is really like when you're accessing healthcare, I mean, we're all, we all access healthcare. We're all human beings who need healthcare. Like you really want to be able to focus on that appointment and the care you're getting. But at this point, they've already traveled, like they're, they've been on a journey. So they arrive to the appointment and get the healthcare that really should have been what they should have been able to focus on. Um, and then they got to go back. So then they got to do the whole thing. They got to go through airport security, get back, get the Uber from the airport. And then let's say they have a two-hour flight back. And that's, I mean, that could be done in all, all in one day, but sometimes it can't be. Like sometimes it's just not possible to do all that in one day. And that's like another obstacle that I come across is that a lot, a lot, I would say most of the patients I talk to are already parents. So they're like, I have to be back that evening because I don't have childcare overnight. Like I don't have overnight childcare. So then I'm like trying to get them back the same evening um, because, because they're a parent. And, And then like, can you imagine just like, you know, just like imagine your own parents, like your own like mom, just like zipping away for one day to go get like a really simple healthcare procedure. And then they have to like rush back and you're already in bed. And, and, um, it's just so stressful. It's so stressful for the, for the parent, for any, any family members that might be like, kind of like sharing this whole stressful experience with them, any friends, um, Mm. any loved ones. And it's just, you have to find time off too. Oh yeah. I didn't even get into that. Yeah. So I don't know. Like I just, I said a lot of numbers just now. So I know I started off with 1200 and then I tacked on a bunch of extra things. Oh, and I didn't mention that you're going to have to eat that day. You know, like you're, you're in another state and you have to get food. (laughs) So like it easily for one person starts racking up until like over 2000. And, um, that's why abortion funds are really important. Um, but that's also, that's a lot. That's a lot. And that's a lot on top of like an intimate healthcare appointment. And, um, you know, just, just outlining how much someone has to do to get to an appointment. There's, there's even a couple other factors to consider too, because a lot of these people who are having to fly or drive these long distances to their appointment, they would have never been in that situation otherwise. So, you know, you, these are individuals who have never flown on a plane before maybe because like they've just never been in a situation in which they needed to fly on a plane. They've always been able to drive to like vacations and everything like, you know, like, oh, family vacation, you drive maybe like four hours and, you know, you have fun and you just don't want to go on a plane. It makes you nervous. And that's a lot of people live like that. So all of a sudden these people have no choice. Like, oh, you have to get on a plane and otherwise you're gonna have to drive 12, 13 hours. So they get on a plane and they're scared because they've never done it before because they're already stressed out that they're going to a doctor's appointment. Um, They're already stressed out that they're relying on basically strangers to get them there, which is – that's like a whole other topic is like you have to rely on strangers um, and that's – you know, people shouldn't have to do that. And and then also – you have to navigate an airport. So a lot of my job has become looking at maps. Like I'm looking at a map, like how far away is this someone from a clinic? How far away are they from an airport? You know, can they go here? Can they go here? Um, but I'm also on the phone with people kind of describing how airports 
network. Like, here's what airport security looks like. People are afraid of TSA, and I don't blame them. I fucking hate TSA. They're always yeah. assholes. <laughs> Fuck them. Yeah. They make everything worse. You got to go through TSA. And you gotta, you gotta know how to get your tickets and you gotta know how to where, you know, to get to a terminal. A lot of people don't like, if you've never flown before, they might not know that they're supposed to get on that little train thingy, <laughs> you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like you yeah. get a little train, you go to yeah. your terminal and like a lot of people don't know that. And, um, all of a sudden they have to find out really fast. Um, and I have to explain it. And that's part of their abortion care. Part of people's abortion care is now talking them through an airport. Um, and that that has that uh, sucks. <laughs> that's become like the daily yeah. experience. That's become the daily experience. Whereas, like, yeah, six years ago, these used to be like, okay, I'm going to book your appointment. You're going to come in. Your appointment's going to be maybe like I don't know five hours, and then you, you and then you leave and you drive home. And maybe you're only driving like thirty minutes, maybe an hour, maybe two hours. And now we're having people who, you know flights or it's a 12 hour drive um two hour flight there two hour flight back the flight lands at like midnight you know like and then your kids are in bed and it's like it's so much and you can see why people give up and people are giving up um in fact the numbers are the numbers are hard to hear um I know that there was a study that showed that in the first six months after the Dobbs decision, 36,000 people who wanted an abortion couldn't get one. And that is only in the first six months. So I'm sure that that number is is much I, – I, I'm like dreading seeing new numbers, but I'm sure the number is much higher now. So when you're faced with all of this, people do give up because it is too much, um, which was the whole point. Of, of all of the bans and everything that's happened, the point was to make people give up. And I think that a lot of leftists maybe don't want to acknowledge that people are giving up. They want to believe that people will keep trying and they'll find those resources and they will get to the appointments because help is available. But not everyone finds the help that is out there and not everyone can make it work. Like there's a lot of reasons why people can't do this ridiculous thing I just described. And, and then, um, as abortion care workers, we see them give up. And I think that's kind of been the biggest, one of the biggest changes for me is just how often I see people give up and just having to witness that because it's like, well, what does it mean when someone gives up? Um, what does it mean when someone stops trying to get the healthcare that they're looking for? They're changing their entire plans. Like, you know, cause like everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people have like ideas of what they're doing with their life. And they're like, I want to have this many kids. I want to have them at these times. And I want to be with this person or I don't want to be with anyone. And, and I want to work this job and, and go to this school or whatever, you know, you're, you're making plans. And then all of a sudden, because of this situation, you have to change your plans. And, and there's even worse things happening than that. But I, I think that that's bad enough is that you you can't get what you need and you just have to just change your life and accept defeat and 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 take a path that you did not want to take and it's fucking sad and it's more than sad sad is an understatement i don't know what word it is it's horrible cuz 
this has been taken from them. The choice has been taken from them completely. And that's, that is going to have effects that we are going to see for decades to come. And that's kind of hard to wrap your brain around. Like, what does it mean for that, that tens and tens of thousands of people to not have had the healthcare that they need? It means that um, we're going to see like the negative health effects for years to come, because that is a lot of people. That is a lot of, that's a lot of people. And that's going to impact people in really long-term ways for, for a really long time. And knowing that is, is really, I don't know. Words are kind of failing me. It's it's like, it's like beyond traumatic beyond. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there will be studies in years from now. I'm sure. But like, it's been a year and I can say like, it's those, it's going to, the data is going to be really bad. The data is going to be really bad based on everything that I've already seen. So. Suffering is not something you can quantify. And, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the amount mm-hmm. of human suffering that's been unleashed by this is, yeah. like, one of the worst crimes that's happened in a century full of, like, unspeakable crimes. And the suffering looks different for each individual, you know, yeah. like, it's like, because it's just the whole, the whole, the it's autonomy. You're losing control over your life and your body and your family and your, and, and there's just so many things. And... It, it looks different for each person. So it's, for some people, it's like you have to just fucking change everything that you're fucking doing. You can't control your life or your body. Um, and then for other people, it can be even worse than that where where you are – you're risking death because pregnancy is incredibly dangerous. So there are people who who are putting themselves in, in really dangerous situations um, with their pregnancies and they're being denied the care that they need. So you see people um, – who are being forced to to risk their life because they can't get the care they need. And people are losing their body parts and their fertility because recently I read a story um, and then there's these horror stories every day, which I like, I read them because I want to know everything that's happening. But I also am so resentful that like every day there's like a new like horror story about these services. But recently there was someone, uh, there was somebody who wasn't able to get timely abortion care and had to continue a pregnancy and ended up losing her uterus, even though she did not, she wanted to have more kids. She, she like wanted yeah. to continue having children. Yeah. So all of a sudden, because she couldn't get an abortion, she couldn't continue to expand her family in the way that she wanted. Yeah. I mean, she's being um, sterilized effectively. Yeah, like, exactly. Like by the state, which is, yeah. yeah. So it, it's the, the suffering is, is so different for each individual and so intimate to them. Um, they're, and, and it's it's going all the way up to like just like state mandated just like body horror basically and and it's deadly it's really deadly which is hard to talk about yeah i mean you know just having said that um should we talk a little bit about gabriela gonzalez and yeah how you know the other thing about abortion care is that it's not just that pregnancy is dangerous physically it's that pregnancy like pregnancy is really dangerous socially because you know we live in an incredibly patriarchal society and that means patriarchal violence is a real threat yeah and this is always this unfortunately one component of abortion care is um it it often involves interpersonal violence um, or more you know a lot of people say domestic violence and it's because a lot of partners will try to control someone um through through pregnancy and it, it's a tactic of abuse that that does come up 
And um, if somebody does get pregnant while they are in that kind of relationship, and you, that's that's a big thing. You know, you, a lot of times they it, it makes sense that if they're trying to get away from someone, um, that you know they don't want to continue the pregnancy. Um, so, and then that might be something that the partner might be intimately involved in where either they know about it or they don't know about it. And if they know about it, they could be pressuring the individual. It's unfortunately something that is often a component of this healthcare is that that is a factor that the person seeking healthcare is dealing with. So in terms of, um, and all of this is, I'm like, I, this is all really, really triggering stuff too. And yeah. um, so, yeah. you know, trigger warning, but um, with Gabriela Gonzalez, um, that was something that happened. I think it was in, it was, it was in May. I remember it was in mid-May because the news hit, it hit hard for us, for um, like a lot of abortion care workers and practical support, you know, advocates, because it's the thing that we, we, we try so hard to keep our patients safe um, when they disclose things to us, you know, they, we, the patient safety is the number one priority. And the fact of the matter is these bans make it harder for people to access the services safely. So in the case of Gabriela Gonzalez, um, I, I just want to say her name. She was a mother of three children. She was 26 years old when she was murdered by her ex-partner after she accessed an abortion in another state. So she was located in Texas. She had to travel to Colorado to get an abortion. And when she came back, um, unfortunately, she was murdered by her, by her ex. Um, and just like a couple, just like a couple of things on, on, on that is, it's just if you are trying to be discreet and you're trying to, you know, take care of your healthcare, it's hard to keep things private if you have to tr- fly to another or drive yeah. to another yeah. state. It's just the situation is is just so much more complicated than than it would be if you could access those services at home or or near near where you are. It, it's easier to keep that information private. Um it's easier to handle that situation in a timely way. So I, I feel like, I mean, our, our country is failing everyone pretty much, but I, I'm torn apart and devastated. And this was, this news hit so hard to learn about Gabriela Gonzalez um, and what happened to her. And knowing that, you know, we try so hard to keep our patients safe and being careful about communications, being careful about what we hand patients even. Like there are some times like, it's like, well, I cannot give you any handouts. So here's how we're going to provide you the information. Um, because it's, you know, people can't even have that information on their phone or or in their purse, on their person. And trying so hard and then just having like the state defy you in every way. And and it's just really it's trapping people in the in this these violent situations that you say yeah, I mean these situations have ex- always existed yeah. but ever since these abortion bans went into effect it has made them even even more dangerous yeah and i mean you know and i th- i think in terms of just sort of getting at what the people who support this stuff believe like they know about this like this is this mm-hmm. is what they want to happen right like this is 
you know, th- this this is what this is what it this is what it actually means to have an ideology that's based on patriarchal control is this shit. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's this. Like this is this this violence and the, like this kind of coercion is what they want. These are also, you know, like the, again, these are there's a reason these are also the people who want to end at fault divorce, right? Like they like their entire ideology is based on men being able to inflict violence. Yep. And and yeah. And you know, and these are what pro-life people and you know, Gabrielle Gonzalez was a mother of three children. She was a mother and her children needed her and now she's gone. And and I I feel like the abortion bans and the de- like the de- the demolition of abortion services in the United States has led to this situation and will continue to lead to more situations yeah. like this and they're all devastating and and I hate it. <laughs> like I just it's, yeah, it's, it's fucking just... awful. It's so fucking bad. Yeah. And I know that, like, I'm like, where do I go from there? Like, yeah. Like, after saying, <laughs> it's like, the worst shit in the world, and then, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess, I guess, the thing I can say after that, right, is like, if, if if you want to live in a world that is not just utterly controlled by the most evil people who've ever lived, by you know, that is defined by enormous engines of human suffering. Like these people, their politics, their logistical support networks, their parties, like the the entire political apparatus that is doing it needs to be completely destroyed. Like mm-hmm. like ra- raised to the ground in a way that it, it like literally can never recover. And that is the thing that is possible, right? It it is it is possible to completely destroy political movements. It is possible to just drive them so far underground that people forget they even existed. And, you know, and then that has happened to movements before that were, you know, as powerful as this one. So it can be yeah. done. It's just it it, it, it requires, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, 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 it requires a level of political will that most that, you know, politicians don't give a shit about because this is not something that affects them. And speaking of politicians not giving a shit, going back to like, you know, the initial reflection on like, you know, it's it's been a year since. Roe v. Wade was overturned and the Dobbs decision. And it, the po- what has happened? Like, what have the politicians done to alleviate all of this suffering that, you know, I, I've been talking about? And it's it's very little. Like, the biggest win that we've had is Mifepristone not being banned, which is horrible. Because, like, oh, and then that was that whole yeah. thing. That whole separate – that's, like, a whole other thing. But – um. That is such a bleak win, especially since it's not even gone, and we're going to see this issue come back with mifepristone, and and that's another thing too, because if that does happen, like misoprostol is amazing and misoprostol is very effective, um, and taking misoprostol only for abortion is effective. But it's also more symptomatic. And given just like, you know, like we were talking about people, like just people being exposed to violence, people um, having to act, doing just like moving mountains and having to cross mountains and and go on a journey to get these abortion services in literally what can be often a 30 minute to an hour appointment. Um, if you're, you know, lucky, it's not always like that. But anyways, like these services aren't complicated. Like, you know, like it's not like a, like these, yeah, we have the technology. Procedure. Yeah, we have the technology. Like, like 
to get medication, you just go and you get the medication and they tell you how to take the medication and they make sure they can prescribe you the medication. You get it. It's not like that can be like a 15 minute appointment. And then if you're, um, if you're like under, um, a certain gestational age, a a first trimester abortion, it can be only like five minutes. Like this, this is not complicated healthcare. This is very simple healthcare. And you're adding all these extra factors in. So when you're, when you have to prescribe someone a medication that is more symptomatic, which is just adding, like, it's just one more complication. Like, and the attack on abortion services has always been death by a thousand cuts. Um, and this is just like one more cut that we really, really do not need. So, but that was a win. And, and, and it's like, that is such a shitty win. And then you have some states that are becoming like sanctuary states where they're like, you know, where, uh, I hate, I hate saying that word. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say sanctuary states because it's really not that. But yeah, they're I mean, saying we're, like, we're a safe place for you to get an abortion and we're never we're always going to have abortion services. And it's like, what does that mean if you have so many patients traveling from other states that you're booking five weeks out? Yeah, well, they won't. And it's like they won't <laughs> fucking fund it. Right? Like, yeah. this, this is the thing that like I, I'm just like unbelievably fucking angry about. Right. Is it like, you know, Dobbs in, 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 in terms of just the raw sort of politics of it, right, in terms of just pure getting votes. This is the best thing that's ever fucking happened in the Democratic Party, right? They have been reaping the fucking electoral rewards for this. And what have they been fucking doing for 50 goddamn years? Like, nothing, know. right? And, and this and this is something that, like, okay, you know, if, if, you, if you look at the way the right has been, like, fucking dealing with this, right? It's at every single step, right? You know, they, they, they're constantly involved in lawsuits. Or they, they're, they're constantly pushing the boundaries and doing literally whatever they can within the within and without the, the bounds of the law right i mean we've talked about the sort of vigilante campaigns right but like you know do, like doing things like 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 you know i mean the, the one of the classic ones is requiring like facilities that do abortions to have like a specific length of hallway or like yep. like width Trap of hallway laws. that's different yeah and like they've been doing all this fucking legal bullshit to make it as hard as, as humanly possible right is there a Democrat version of this? No, no. They no. fucking they came to the height of it. Like even 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 the states that have this shit, it's not like they're mm-hmm. they're not fucking funding it, right? It's like no. they're not they're not fucking paying. Like they, they there's shit that they could be doing, and they just they don't care yeah. because this is this is a you know this is a very nice thing they can trot out in their fucking fundraising meetings, and they can get people to vote for them. But they're not gonna they're not gonna wage this kind of campaign that the Republicans have been like they're not gonna wage a pro axis campaign on the scale. I mean, at all, right? But they're not going to not going to wage one on the scale the Republicans have been doing to like make sure that you fucking can't get these services. Yeah, it's like the, these blue states—they're not safe, and there there's like the ridiculous. There was like stockpiling misoprostol or whatever some states were saying they were doing, and it's like if you're really looking out for people and you're really trying to defy these awful human rights violating laws, then send the medication to banned states. Yeah. I mean, I, I, help I, I, patients in banned states. Like, don't abandon Texas. Yeah. Don't abandon Louisiana and Mississippi. Like, help them. And because, like, where are they going? They're going to blue states. Like, there's like, there's like a ripple effect. And I, I feel like I talked about this last time when I was on um, talking to you. Where okay, you can't get these healthcare services near you. So you go somewhere else and the people locally can't get those services. So then they have to travel farther. And there's like this ripple effect to the point where like, I'm sure that like blue states are seeing more appointments than ever. And I know for a fact, like here in Pennsylvania, here in Pittsburgh, where literally we're seeing, we're always seeing people in Ohio just because they, Ohio, even though abortion is legal in Ohio, um, it's just, there's a lot of restrictions there. So it's a little yeah. tricky. Um, 
But then there's like West Virginia and like Kentucky and Tennessee and you're seeing so many more patients. So you're booking out further. And it's like, if you're, let's say you're eight weeks and you find out. So if you're eight weeks pregnant, then you're, um, you've only missed your period, like for like a couple of weeks. It's really like, you know, you, you, you can find out you're eight weeks pregnant. You're like, you just found out really. Um, and you call somewhere near you to get an appointment, but the appointment is five weeks away. So all of a sudden you go from eight weeks to 13 weeks. It's like, yeah, what the heck? Clock. It's like yeah, like it's totally different options. Like, um, and that's happening in blue states, and it's like so. This is impacting literally everyone, but no politicians or even like big talking heads are really doing anything about it because it just gets worse. There's just more bans constantly, yeah. and and I, I want to talk a bit about this the sanctuary bullshit too because I there, 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 this is like a third fucking issue that we've seen politicians be like oh we're a sanctuary state it's like yeah okay like I, I I remember when I was doing fucking anti ice raid stuff right do you know do you do you know how much how much time we fucking spent trying to stop raids like ice raids in saying in quote unquote sanctuary states mm-hmm. like it's bullshit it's always been fucking bullshit they don't mean it. And, you know, it, like, it, like all of the fucking like they, they it, this is this, the sanctuary state thing is just like a thing that they fucking say so that they can, you know, just sort of like, like rally their base support and like build towards mm-hmm. the, whatever presidential run they're going to do in 20, like 32 or whatever. And it it doesn't it's not it's not helping people. And, and it's just not going to. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's, it's not a strategy that works. And I mean, it's just entirely selfish. It's it's it's. It's rage inducing because it's, you know, how do I feel as an abortion worker? You know, it's been a year since Roe v. Wade was overturned and I have to witness all of this needless suffering and trauma and people's safety being compromised and and people being hurt and uh, people giving up and and then these politicians not doing anything. I am so I'm full of so much anger that it's it's sometimes numbing like sometimes I'm just so angry yeah. that I yeah. kind of feel nothing like it kind of like it's like it, it it's so far down the spectrum that I like just it just turns into like a non-emotion basically like so much anger that it's blinding and feels like nothing um and I don't even know where I don't even know what to do with it other than focus into just like continuing to provide healthcare where it's like, oh, I'm so angry and I'm so mad and I feel so terrible. I am going to make sure that this person gets an abortion. <laughs> like that's what yeah. I can do. I yeah. can I can get people to an appointment and I don't I I want to do more. I want to go and and just like raise everything to the ground and be like like you were saying. But I can't be the only one doing that. Like we all have to do. That. Yeah, <laughs> like, we all have to raise everything to the ground um, because this is so untenable and so unfair, and and is creating such a huge ripple of suffering that we're all going to be experiencing yeah. for decades. And I'm really bitter about it. Yeah. Um, I'm super angry and super bitter, and and. It, and it's 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 not going to get better too it's it's not um i have to be honest about that because if i'm not then i'm not going to be prepared but we're going to continue to see these bans they're not going away right now um the mifepristone issue is going to come back and 
and we're going to keep seeing it and it's spreading. And, you know, I know that that's like a whole other topic too, but um, the ripple effects are really immense. Um, And every time someone is hurt, well, every individual, like when I heard that 36,000 number, that really hurt. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, I know how many patients I've seen in the last year and it is, it's less than 36,000. So like I'm ha- every time I help someone, I'm so happy. And I'm like, yes, you know, I helped this person get healthcare. I'm really happy. And then I look at that 36,000 number and I'm like, oh my God, there are so many other people who were not able to find help. And I'm, and I don't like, like I said, like, I don't even feel good when someone is like thanking me and they oftentimes people will say, people will say to me, I hear this almost every day. You have no idea how grateful and thankful I am. And it's like, I really don't, I don't know. Cause I'm not in your shoes and I feel I'm, and I'm sorry that I, that you had to come to me like this. Like, I'm sorry. I feel I'm so sad in like such a deep visceral way that when someone is saying like, you'll never know, know how thankful I am that they just weren't able to go to their local doctor's office or even have the medication mailed to them. And and have it like come in like two days and just take it and follow up with the doctor on the phone if needed, you know, something super simple, which would make sense. And I am just, I'm, I just, I, I hate it. I fucking hate it. Yeah. <laughs> I just keep coming to that. I'm like, this is so bad. <laughs> this is so bad. Uh, I'm going to keep doing it, but it sucks. Yeah. We're going to talk more about this next episode and also how the things that we're seeing in abortion care have been spiraling out and spreading to other sectors of the healthcare system, including trans healthcare. But in the meantime, we have an enormous number of links to different abortion funds and various uh, abortion worker groups who also need your support. So yeah, please support them. And yeah, so that that's going to be the next episode is because yeah, again, like this this isn't a you know, once once you have like an evil like this has been unleashed into the world, yeah. it, it doesn't just stay in one place, right? It keeps moving, it keeps going after different people, it keeps expanding and it keeps just rippling through the world. And so we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about Yeah. like, you know, I mean, the fights that abortion workers have been having um and then we're going to we're going to we're going to give you a brief bit of hope at the end of like yeah. what you can do because like Fuck it. The world does not need to be like this. Like, this is not, you know, I mean, there, there's there's the old David Graeber lines like that is the ultimate hidden truth of this world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. Let's do it. Let's make it different. Yeah, let's fucking do that. <laughs> let's, let's not let's not let's not make a fucking immense engine of human suffering. Yeah. Um. Before we go for this episode, uh, do you have stuff that you want to plug in terms of like abortion fund links, in terms of resources? Yeah, absolutely. So I know that I was talking about um, just abortion funds in general. So find your local abortion fund. You know, go to abortionfunds.org and you know whatever your local abortion fund support it. And if you feel like you you know your local abortion fund like you've been supporting them or they get a lot of support and you want to support um, maybe like funds elsewhere that are doing doing the good work, then I would recommend um, the Texas Equal Access Fund, the T Fund in Texas. Um, they are being so amazing and I love them. And also I I know that the Chicago Abortion Fund is a huge fund, yeah. but I just, I love them so much. So 
I just, they can't have enough money. Just go yeah, donate they're, they're to good people. They're so amazing. So Texas Equal Access Fund, the T Fund, um, the Chicago Abortion Fund, they're doing such important work. So, you know, if you, if you're looking for someone outside of your local abortion fund, which you should be supporting, then also check them out as well. Yeah. So Crystal, thank you so much for joining us. We will be back tomorrow. We will be talking more about this. We'll be talking about what you can do. And yeah, until then, donate to your abortion fund and yeah, make 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 the lives of the people who did this fucking miserable and destroy their political power. Yes. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, the podcast where the situation continues to worsen. Uh, the thing that is worsening today is the rights war on abortion, which they are winning and are continuing to win, is not contained to simply abortion. It has been spreading. It has been getting worse. And yeah, with me here to talk about it is Crystal, who once again is an abortion worker, an abortion union organizer, and on the on the on the the, the board of a bail fund. Uh, not bail fund. Jesus Christ. Sorry, I'm getting my I'm getting my I'm getting my funds crossed in my mind. On the on the board of an of a of a Jesus Christ. You want to start my, over? Yeah. Okay. Let, sorry. Let's see that sorry. Again. I probably shouldn't have said that. No, 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 no. This is this is entirely my fault because we've been doing so much bail fund stuff that 
I mean, they're well, both my, good. Yeah, it was like when my brain thinks <laughs> yeah. fund, it just goes to it just goes to bail fund it's now. All because, things that are good. Yeah, you know, abortion like, funds. That one. You know, we could just leave that in. Screw it. You know, <laughs> fuck it. We'll, we'll 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 leave we'll we'll leave me doing that in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. do it live. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, rip, rip in hell. Guy who said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, uh, Crystal. Welcome back. Uh, yeah, glad to be talking to you again. Love suffering. I love talking about Ooh. pain and suffering and also the good work that we are doing to mitigate it, but yeah. also pain and suffering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, we, 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 I think we should start with sort of, I don't know if framing it as a contagion is the right way to do it. I, I think it's probably not, but the way that the sort of the, 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 the ripple, like where, 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 where are the sort of ripples of, uh, of of the sort of anti-abortion movements advance have been going. Yeah, because you know if if we're talking about you know it's been a year since the Dobbs decision and Roe v. Wade was overturned. You know what does that mean? What does that imply? What have what have been the what has been in kind of like the aftermath of that? Um, the one thing is that you know the strategies to get to that point worked, um, yeah. and I really hate saying. Like in terms of like they won or we lost because we're all we're in America we're all losing <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're all losing here um, except for the fascists but um so but we 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 have we're seeing a lot of bad things happening because of the Dobbs decision and that's those strategies worked um, in our current political environment to to get us to that point and. And I mentioned before, you know, it, death by a thousand cuts is, is is kind of like one of the ways in which you can describe the strategies, like um, nonstop bans, nonstop restrictions, just a constant onslaught, um, basically uh, uh, bans that are they're copycat legislation. You know, they're they're being pumped out. Um, people can just like literally plug in the templates and share them, and it can be applied to a number of different things in different states and and um, you know, copycat. Uh, copycat legislation, so it, it worked, and we're we're where we are because that strategy worked and did not get enough resistance. Um, not enough was done to combat that strategy um, on the left with Democrats, and it immediately spread to the next autonomy-based issue. Because, um, and not saying that it didn't start before that, because you know these fascists have been going after all kinds of issues of autonomy for decades. Um, abortion being one of them, um, you know, prison, uh, prison abolition being one of them. And then also trans healthcare, um, and just, you know, LGBT in general, but like specifically yeah. trans healthcare that we have been seeing. Um, we are seeing a lot of the same restrictions and bans, uh, spreading to that very quickly, like faster than I, I mean, like I knew things were bad. You would think that I would just like, you know, expect the worst, but like, I, I didn't think that we would see the legislation for like, the anti-trans health, uh, healthcare and gender affirming services legislation move as fast as it has. Like I should have, and I didn't, and it's been incredibly fast. Um, and, and it feels so similar. And I should, I don't even want to say it feels similar. It is. Like it's when I, when I'm seeing it happen, I'm like, this is the same thing. They're using trap laws, which are laws that, um, so, uh, 
target actual providers. I mean, I guess you can't really call them trap laws because abortion provider is in yeah, that, well, but and also, it's the same. There's the whole trap thing, which we're not going to get it. We've, oh, we've done that in other shoot. episodes. Yeah, yeah, but, <laughs> I mean, fucking, don't listen they're to called trap laws and abortion services, yeah. but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, it's the same like type of of restrictions and bans, and we're seeing them spread to to, to um, those kind of healthcare services. So it's impacting other types of healthcare services, and it's I, I, and I'm seeing a lot of the same legal back and forth where it's like, oh, this law went into effect, like, for example, in Florida and, oh, now um, it's being challenged in court. So it's, it's not being, um, uh, it's not enforced right now. So it kind of go back, goes back to the way it um, does before, which I mean, it, it's always good to see a restriction um, temporarily paused and a ban temporarily paused because that relief is needed. I, I, I see that in abortion care. Like when, when there is a ban that is temporarily reversed by the courts, it is like, thank, thank God. Um, I'm so happy. You know, we get some relief. We can, we can see people for their healthcare services tomorrow. However, that back and forth is incredibly confusing and creates confusion and chaos on, and, um, and, like on a mass scale, because it's like, can I access these services? Can I not access these services? Can I get these services in the state? Do I have to travel out of state? Um, it's more than like the in- individual can keep up with. And confusion is the point. So like when I'm seeing some of these um, bans related to trans health services, uh, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm glad that I'm pretty sure I have to admit I have not read the news in the last couple of days. So I don't know if this has been walked back, but it seems like uh, Florida has some relief right now. But I just know what that mass confusion looks like for individuals. And I'm like, this is so similar. Oh, my God, this is this is the same type of fight. This is the same fight. And and I I think, you know, because like this is also another thing with the media is just just like active accomplices like. this is this is a kind of thing where like it it, it is really easy to look at this and go like they're doing this on purpose they can generate fucking horror stories which i don't think is why they're doing it i think they're doing it because they're transphobes but you know like one of the one of the things that's very that's just fucking awful about this stuff is that like the the people who are reporting on this don't understand how these laws work and so you know, like I mean, like mm-hmm. I do. This is my job, right? Like I cover this for a living, and I will read a report about something, and I can't tell what the law does because the person writing the fucking the this the stupid ass journalist who they've hired, who like have never talked to a trans person in their life, and like are only tangentially aware of what the law is. Like, like the 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 concept of the law is something they were introduced to two years ago, mm-hmm. like. They don't fuck. They don't fucking know what these bills do, right? So you have to like go actually read the bill, but that doesn't help because you know this. This is yeah. This is like this is I think a very similar strategy of like there's there's this way in which like constant onslaught, constant sort of confusion, constant terror, and also you know in the way that the strategy right now that it, that is being sort of relied on to stop this stuff is through the courts. That that is very similar to what the entire struggle over abortion rights looked like, and. You know, we know how that ended. It it doesn't. It didn't work, and it's not yeah. going to work with the with with trans rights either. And like it, and and you know, and and I think something that like we're we're going to see more of, as you know, because like I wonder some of these bans will be struck down, but you know, you're going to get the abortion thing where it's like okay, so you like one ban gets struck down, so they pass another one, then you just keep passing them until they can find one that their fucking judges will 
maintain. Yeah, they they like reintroduce bills that are like practically the same thing, but like slightly different. Yeah. And they just like retry stuff after doing like political shenanigans. And and I and we're still we're still doing the the legal back and forth approach in abortion care. Like it's still the yeah. same thing. Yeah. Like it, it hasn't changed. And seeing that also happen. It's like, well, people need healthcare now, like with abortion care and trans healthcare. It's like you need that healthcare when you need it, like right now, today, tomorrow. And when there is confusion and this bad, like the, the, cause the courts take forever. Like it, it's, and it changes a lot and it's confusing when you see the news stories, like you were saying. So it's inter- interfering and lowering the quality of accessing like lowering the quality of that healthcare and accessing that healthcare, like the experience of accessing that healthcare now, like today. And it's, it's cumulative because like you, you, you lose the ability to keep track of what you have the right to do and what you don't. And, and these are, these are the same, like they're issues of controlling your life and your body um, and of privacy as well. You know, your ability, it's like your business, it's your body. Um, and, and the state is getting in the way and and it hurts so much to see this happening to even more people because like it it's it's hard enough watching what happens to people who need abortions um and seeing what they go through and then having to see even more people who are also trying to access healthcare to help them um have control over their lives and their bodies also having that you know having that impeded and 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 taken away from them to with a different type of healthcare and seeing like that is just like oh my god like not only were we able we were not able to um maintain these services in this country and and we're also seeing it happen to another type of healthcare um, and, and another thing too, is like abortion providers are also trans healthcare providers. Like yeah. it's, it's like body stuff. It's like, you know, like it's, they're, they're like often the same building. Yeah. Like, like Planned Parenthood does both. Yeah. Like people who get mm-hmm. hormones through Planned Parenthood. because, yep. And a lot of independent clinics too. A lot of independent abortion providers also provide trans healthcare as well. Um, and, and gender hormones, uh, uh gender hormone. I keep saying gender hormone. Even though that doesn't make any I'm sense. Why do I keep saying that? <laughs> but hormone therapy services and gender for yeah. me, health, I feel like I'm like combining those together. But um, um, they offer both. Yeah, like, but but that also means that like if you if if you knock out a clinic for like for one of the reasons, you've also knocked out the services for everyone else too, right? So like it, mm-hmm. it's you know, and and I, I think this is something that's very important about the way the right sees this. Is that the right sees this as the same fight, very clearly. Mm-hmm. And that, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think in terms of the people who actually do organizing, I think it's it like it's understood that it is the same fight, but I don't think it is as much in the general public, even though the like for the people you're fighting against, they're, you know, incredibly like viscerally and disturbingly clear about yeah. like what what they want to do and about the fact that you know, like destroying people's autonomies and using the state to take control of, I mean, just like literally physically take control of their bodies mm-hmm. and define what they are, which is something they do. Like, you know, I mean, then this, 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 this is the thing that's been happening in, in these anti-trans bills too, is like, they've been like, like legally defining what a woman is by like yeah. reproductive apparatuses and stuff like that. Yeah. And that, 
that's disgusting. And yeah. it, and it, and it makes me feel just like disgusted as like a, just like seeing that because like I feel like I don't even like fit some of the criteria that no like as as a cis woman I feel like it like and I'm just like oh my god and we're also like we're punishing people for not having like perfect health and like perfect pregnancies and being born into the body that you know what I mean like people are being punished for not being the ideal because like um and I've asked I've like stupidly asked this out loud where I'm like you know. I've asked out loud, like, why are these bans so restrictive where people who are pregnant and, you know, like, they're just not having a perfect pregnancy, like, there are complications, like, which which happen, and they're, like, being punished for not having the perfect pregnancy by these laws, like, these abortion restrictions, and I'm like, why would they do that? Like, why, like, it, how can you not know that pregnancies go wrong, and how would you not know that? And then somebody said to me, they were like, well, you know, like, Eve was punished with the ability to, with dangerous pregnancies. Like if you look at their religion, um, yeah. like it was a punishment. So I'm like, yeah, like they're, they just believe we should be pun- like punished for not being born into the right body, not having the perfect pregnancy, not um, wanting a pregnancy, you know, like you're being punished for not inhabiting the ideal because they believe that it is a, it's a punishment just like, in, I guess I'm trying to think of the word like naturally, intrinsically or something. I don't know. Um, and I don't subscribe to that ideology, yeah, but no. it's being forced on us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think there's this way in which people have people have this tendency to conceive of like neoliberalism, right, specifically as this thing that's about like the retreat, the retreat of, of state power. And that's never been what it is. Right. What, like, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, you, if you look at what neoliberalism actually looks like, it's fucking abortion bans. Right. Like the people who are pushing that are the people who pushed Reagan into office. The, the actual point of the state in neoliberalism and this and, you know, and this is one that's incredibly compatible with the sort of like with the sort of religious fascists that they allied themselves with in order to come into power. Right. The, the way that's actually manifested is, is just through the state directly taking control of your body, because, you know, like people people aren't actually fucking natural market subjects. They're not. Like a woman is not as as these like stupid assholes always insist is like oh it's someone who gives birth like no that's just like yeah, not it's true not. it's not even true it's not and so and, be, and because it's not right but people be, because that's the image that they have to like force you into the only way they can do that is by using state violence to physically take control of your body and shape yep. you into the thing that they think you are yep yep and and they're like n- none of this stuff is siloed like you know. Like pregnancy is related to abortion care, is related to um, just like trans care is like embedded in all of that as well. Um, uh, trans people get pregnant and, and have abortions. And also in terms of hormone therapy, more like, you know, um, like people besides trans people need oh, yeah. hormone therapy as yeah. well. Like, like none of these things are a silo by themselves. Like they're all kind of embedded together. And the effect of that is that it's kind of become impossible to be a doctor and a healthcare provider um, for a lot of these services because they're so entwined. And because like, you know, we all, we have our bodies and like our, our bodies aren't in separate like contain yeah. our body parts aren't in separate containers like they're all like we're like all connect like it's all connected and you can't really have one without the other and um and now we're seeing doctors who can't safely do 
they're what they have to do, like provide like the healthcare to the to like appropriate medical standards um, within these laws that exist. So you see doctors who are like, wow, I can't actually perform the healthcare that I need to perform without potentially losing my license. So I'm just going to leave the state. So you see a lot of doctors. Uh, there's been a lot of news stories about doctors, particularly. Um, the ones that I've seen, I'm sure that there's other types of doctors too, but like, you know, um, obstetricians and uh, OBGYNs who are leaving states because they cannot safely practice the medicine as it's, as, you know, as science and medicine wants them to, um, you know, like without risking losing their license. So they're just leaving. And these are states that need those doctors. I mean, there's a lot that can be said about maternal and infant mortality rates in the United States. So the fact that you have OBGYNs like fleeing states and, 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 and and I'm sure these are states that need those doctors and have low standard, um, like low, uh, or have just like low quality, um, uh, outcomes or like bad outcomes when it comes to, uh, uh, maternal and infant mortality. And you're seeing this and it's like, well, this is just making all kinds of healthcare worse. Like it's becoming less safe to just be pregnant in general, even if you are carrying and delivering a pregnancy um, in these states. And I'm sure that you're going to see this also happen because of these trans healthcare bans is that you're going to see doctors fleeing in areas in which those doctors are needed because they are at risk of losing their license and not being able to practice. Um, yeah, and, and another thing I think that's very similar mm-hmm. between these two things is like there's just not that you know we've we've talked about this more broadly, like in a lot of the in, in a lot of the coverage of like I've done on the show about labor stuff, healthcare labor is that like like just everywhere, even even in even in sectors where like there's no there's no sort of legal threat, right? There's there's just massive labor shortages. Because these mm-hmm. these for these for profit healthcare companies are you know don't want to fucking bring in another person on a shift because that costs them more money and that's less money that they can pocket and you know and, and yeah and 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 both both abortion services and trans healthcare are fields where I mean there are just there's just not that many people mm-hmm. like they're just like the 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 numbers are so small that like like I can I can ask my friends and they know like every provider in the city. Oh yeah, it's and, it's like two providers, yeah, like, like two I, abortion providers, like, people, like I, two places to get hormones. It's like <laughs> and and this and, and again, this is in pl- like I, I live in Chicago, right? This is a place where it's like it's pretty easy to get hormones, right? Compared to I mean, this is this is like comparatively, one of the, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's like, but I mean, like like genuinely, like this is a, this is a thing we you know this is like if you want to like look at other parallels, right? This is like Chicago has always been. I mean, not always, but. For, I mean, like half a century, probably longer than that, has been a place where people, like trans people from around the country, particularly from the South, have like uprooted their lives and fled to because it was a place where you could actually get care. And, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, but like, but even here, it's fucking hard as shit. Like, it's it's really hard. And, you know, and and a lot like the, like, like my one of one of the local clinics has been on strike for months and months and months because they're uh, the the place that they work for like slashed a bunch of services, and so and this like the, this this kind of struggle is you know like the, this is this is the thing that's happening in places where it's even where it's legal, and then mm-hmm. suddenly the state bans it, and suddenly you know people are leaving the field, people are leaving states it becomes even harder. The services that already exist get even, just even more overtaxed, and it's just like it's the exact same collapse just like rippling through the entire sector and none of these jobs pay a lot either no, like they pay like shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah like i i i 
just in general, like I'm sure, like I'm not citing a specific job, but I'm sure that there are um, abortion providers like who are like medical assistants and hormone therapy, like medical assistants that are making like 15 bucks an hour, which is ridiculous considering you're also being threatened with violence. Um, You're also having to deal with patients who who are also experiencing the same national health crisis that you are. Yeah. Like you're, you're experiencing it together. Like this is something like, it's not like, Oh, I'm suffering by myself as a worker or, Oh, these patients are suffering as individual. I mean, they are suffering as individual, but you know, like they're not suffering alone as individuals. They're experiencing like the same sort of like, um, um, grief as like a lot of the other people who are accessing the same services as them. And it's like, well, we are all in this sinking boat together. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and it's so hard to recruit into these roles. Uh, so, like, we need more uh, more abortion care and trans health providers. And it's hard to get people to commit to that when you you can't live on that. And you can't sustain that. Like, you can't stay in that job and keep doing it for years when you're literally being, like, you're 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 being traumatized. Um, you're experiencing suffering. You're witnessing suffering. Yeah, I mean, that's you're getting suff- killed. Like that that that, yeah. that that's mm-hmm. a real thing that happens to and threatened. Yeah, like just like like violent threats are yeah. something that um, both types of health services have in common now, yeah. which is so depressing. But uh, it's. It, we're all we're all being threatened by by the right and uh, by fascists. Like I try to like. I, sometimes it's like the right conservatives. And I'm like, they're fascists. They're, they're, it's fascism. Um, I mean, it's literally like a lot of the people like who show up to this stuff. It's it's like it's literally the same groups of proud boys who show up to like different things over and over again. And they get relabeled by the media as like concerned parents or like the Christian outreach groups, depending on like what thing they're at. And it's like, okay, these no, like these are fascists who tried to overthrow the government and seize yeah. power. Like th- th- yeah. this, 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 this was three years ago. Like, come on. <sighs> yeah, it was like these are people <laughs> who are actively ago, actually. <laughs> they are ruining the lives of my loved ones and people in my community. Like my yeah. neighbors. Like they are ruining my and my neighbors' lives. Like actively in ways that are just getting worse. So it, it is one fight. I I I really want everyone to realize that I feel like it is being realized more and more now. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the more people who learn it, the better and the ways in which just, I just feel like the, the Dobbs decision and the overturn of Roe v. Wade meant more than just people couldn't get abortions. It, I think it, it it's just the destruction of healthcare in general in this country. Um, and it 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 was it, it turned it into like just like a, a mad dash to do the exact same thing to um, health services that trans people need. Yeah. So fun. Another one of the the parts of this fight, and and I think the part of this fight that is the least popular in terms of like who will actually back you, which is both. Like healthcare workers, both doing abortion care and who are doing trans healthcare, fighting what is essentially like a three-way war, where they are they are under assault from the right and from the state, who are trying to criminalize the healthcare that they provide, and you know directly target them through trap laws and through I don't we need to 
figure out another name for <laughs> the, 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 the version of the anti-trans laws. But, you know, so they're, they're being specifically targeted by the state. And then they're also fighting a conflict with their own employers and whether that's whether that's private healthcare providers or that's NGOs who are, you know, don't want to pay them shit, uh, you know, are, are, funnel, are funneling all of this fucking money into paying somebody's fucking dipshit cousin like $300,000 a year to be like the, the vice executive director of like policy marketing or something. And yeah, and, and, and the, the, way, the way in which, you know, this, this, is, this has turned into a union struggle that is deeply, like, it kind of, in a lot of ways, deeply unpopular among liberals because they just don't, they don't see, like, healthcare providers as workers. Yeah, it, it has been such a strange experience, union organizing and, and, and contract negotiating during a national health crisis and after the fall of Roe v. Yeah. Wade. It was so like, you know, Roe v. Wade is overturned and we got to go to the bargaining table and ask for money. And it's, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's, it's really hard um, because the stress is so compounded for all of the workers. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I've had um, uh, peers in the community and in, in the abortion providing and abortion advocacy community say things like, you know, you expect a snake to be a snake. Like, you know that yeah. the right is going to attack you and the fascists are going to do, do whatever they can to take away your right to autonomy and privacy. Um, but it hurts a lot more. Like, personally, I think it hurts so much more. And it's been so painful in the last year to see the ways in which the people on our side, the people who have the same goals as us, ultimately, like of like, you know, we want people to have abortions and we want people to um, access healthcare and they are to have them hurt you. Um, yeah. Cause, yeah. Like, cause like they're not supposed to be snakes and it, it hurts. It, it hurts a lot more. And a lot of the same people don't, I feel like they're the same kind of folks who didn't, understand the immediacy of needing to protect. Cause so, you know, LGBT, I feel like we, we, we should have gone harder for the T, <laughs> you know, like yeah. all these years, like how long has we have, we had the acronym LGBT yeah. and like, and it's like this whole time, it's like, we re, like, we, we could have seen this coming. We, we should have, we, it was like, it clearly was like the same yeah. with Roe v. Wade where it's like, they are coming for Roe v. Wade this is coming. We could have done so much more to prepare. And I feel like in the, in a, a lot of the same way, the same people who are like def devaluing the labor who didn't do enough to protect abortion services are the same people who didn't do enough to protect just like trans people in general. Yeah. And, and I, 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 th I think there's like, mm -hmm. there, there's, I think, I think there's definitely a sort of expendability thing there too. Right. I mean, this is something that it, like very explicitly in the two thousands, like the, the sort of I don't. I don't know what the technical term for them is, but like big gay, like the, the, you know the the big the like big abortion the, and big gay. Yeah, well, like, like, gay know, like the, the the big the big sort of like LGBTQ like NGOs, right? Uh, you're like human rights campaign, mm -hmm. uh, like groups like that. Very explicitly made a decision in the 2000s where they were like, okay, we're gonna drop our demands for stuff like trans healthcare and trans recognition in, in, in order to sort of build a broader base to get like gay marriage and shit. And that, that was a very explicit decision that they made and, you know, and it worked for them, right? Like, yeah, like we got gay marriage, right? Well, we didn't, well, we didn't actually, we got it through the fucking courts, not through mm -hmm. like the legal process. Right. 
and Donnie, it took ages too, but like, yeah, but like that was, you know, and, and like they, they eventually sort of came back around and were like, we're trans allies, but then, you know, all of the shit was happening. I mean, so this has been going on since like 20, like 2016, right? Is like the first, like the first bathroom bills start. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, yeah. it was over half a decade where things could have been done and they just weren't. And, you know, like yeah. it's, it's the, it's the same thing. Like, like people just get used as like, like people's health just gets in their bodies, get used as bargaining chips. Yep. And I feel like in all, in these, all of these situations that we're talking about, it's, it's not looking out for the most vulnerable. Cause, yeah. um, so if you're talking about, you know, healthcare and ugh, I don't want to say women's rights, I mean, it, it used to be women's rights and then now it's it's just like, you know, like abortion access and you're, you're not looking like who needs this the most and you're not looking out for the most vulnerable. And part of that, part of it in terms of abortion services is, is the compromising, you know, compromising on bans. Like, oh, a 15 week abortion ban is reasonable. No, it's not. Yeah, no abortion no. ban is reasonable. But so that's with abortion services. And then with, um, with the fight for queer liberation, you know, who is the most vulnerable? Well, trans people have, have been the most uh, vulnerable and not looking out for them. And then the frontline workers, like who is the most vulnerable when it comes to people doing the, this work, providing these services, the frontline workers, the people who, who don't, who don't make much, who, you know, the people who aren't managers or CEOs. Um, and I mean like, you know, senior management and CEOs and things like that um, are, are, they're in different situations than the people who are answering the phone and scheduling yeah. and talking to the patients and taking their blood pressure and, um, and giving them their medication. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just not looking out for the people in the most vulnerable situations. It, it It's killing us. It's literally killing us. You have to, it's, it's just so much focus on, on the wrong things when we really should be focused on the most vulnerable all around and and i I think also like the extent to which all of these struggles are labor struggles right i mean this is Mm -hmm. one of the things about trans healthcare as we talk about it that much is that like i think this is sort of a product of like the kinds of trans people who get representation but you know like i think there's a lot of people who think that like the average trans person is like a fucking tech worker in california and it's like no like the like the, the, the 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 actual like median trans person like works at a works at a UPS warehouse, yeah. Or you know is like a vet tech, or like you know does all of this shit that you know works like just really shitty service jobs, and like you know like the stuff for like like I mean struggles that like we're not even having because we're we've been like kicked all the way back down to like can we legally exist? But like you know things like like people getting housing, mm-hmm. right? Like that, that kind of stuff. Like those are labor struggles. The struggle for abortion is is also labor struggle because, yep. like, again, like you can't fucking have abortions without workers who do the yep. abortions. Like they don't mm-hmm. they don't just magically spring fully formed from like the the mind of an NGO. Like, mm-hmm. <sighs> and also, like, I mean, you need you need labor protections in order to access healthcare. It's just a fact. Yeah. Um, like you know, because that's just yet another obstacle that patients are experiencing is getting off work. Like yeah. oh. You got kids and you got to like fly to like across the country to, to access healthcare services and you got to recover from those healthcare services. And it's like, you got to have PTO and like how many people don't have that? 
Yeah, and it, and it works the other way too, right? We're like, but but like this is the thing we've been seeing with Starbucks. We've been seeing this with Google too. With people trying to unionize is like having healthcare is a is a thing that your that your work uses and like hangs over your head. Uh, like to control you. And this has been an explicit thing. Like Starbucks specifically did this thing where they're like, well, if you try to unionize, like we can't guarantee you're going to have, like, we're going to like get rid of your trans healthcare. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And so like, you know, and like this kind of like, you know, that that's like the, them just like dropping the mask and saying the quiet part loud. But like, you know, th- like people's, people's access to healthcare is a, like an enormous union busting tactic. And so mm-hmm. it, it's like, it's literally just on, like on both sides of, of the struggle. Like it is, it is it is just at all levels a labor struggle and it's not thought of like that. Yeah, and again, like I know I brought up silos before in terms of like types of healthcare, but the same silos, it's kind of like a liberal it's like yeah. liberal siloing where you're separating the issues and you can't. Um they're all connected, abortion care, pregnancy care, raising your families, um, police violence, prison abolition, uh, trans healthcare, labor rights, unionizing, they're all connected. And we don't connect the dots enough, I think, in this country. At least yeah. the the people who have power don't. Yeah. And I, I think the separation of these issues has 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 really hurt us. And we're stronger together, you know, safety and solidarity and all that. So if we, if every abortion care worker and abortion volunteer, abortion advocate and, um, you know, a queer liberation advocate, trans health advocate, just trans liberation advocate, union organizer, um, no, or union member, even if you're like working for, if you're a plumber, you know, um, if we all can identify that we have our, it's all one fight and it's all connected We'll be better off for it. So, yeah. <laughs> if we can, well, and, yeah. And, and and I think something that's also is really important is that, like, the, I mean, this is historically like you know, if you want to look at how working class movements are defeated, it's you pick people off by finding something that you know, like for example, like it, like one 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 of, one of the ways you can sort of beat a workers' movement is by like that movement not dealing with the sort of rampant patriarchy in the movement. And, you know, you can radicalize people to the right by just sort of like by like doing sort of misogynist politics. Or you can do the thing that like the you know, this is this is the sort of the Christian democratic strategy in uh, like in Europe was, you know, they 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 recognized that the workers movements like weren't really like organizing women in any substantive way. And so they you know, they were able to create this massive sort of anti-communist like like center right bulwark against like organized labor by like actually organizing women. Right. And, you know, and this, and this is something that they, 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 they sort of do everywhere, which is like, yeah, like if, if, if you, if you aren't fighting all of these things at the same time and conceptualizing them at the same time, like you will get, you will get picked apart one by one in your individual struggle and your movement will collapse and die. And that's really hard. <laughs> and, you know, like the, the, the deck has been stacked against us, but that that's, that's the cards that we have. And, yeah, we have to deal with them. And to to like be a little bit like to look more like on the positive side cuz like, you know, it's like yeah, we we've had our asses kicked and we've lost so much. We have lost so much. We've lost so many of our 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 basic human rights in this country. Um but like abortions are still happening and and trans health is still being provided and there are communities looking out for people who 
are in need of these services and in need of safety because like it's not just about the basic health services but you know you you have to be safe well you know if you're pregnant and you need health care yeah. you want to be safe and then also if you're like a trans individual um and you don't feel safe it's helpful to have those organizations yeah, like there yeah exactly that's totally what i have in mind and um on the bright side like that is like those are still being like the healthcare is still being provided even if it has been decimated and 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 people are having to move mountains in order to get there you know abortions are happening every day we are i i'm still doing i'm still getting people abortions um there are workers who are helping people um get the healthcare that they need the hormones that they need um and and there are people like you know teaching defense and security and and working together and and we need to continue to do this because I, you know, I am really angry and I am really just fucked in the head now because of everything that I've experienced and had to witness. And it's, it's soul crushing, but I just keep doing it because that it just needs to happen. Like this, people need this healthcare. Um, people need this information. People need to be connected safety and solidarity. And I just, you know, we have to keep going like, you know, um, so we have to defend the workers providing these services. We have to defend people accessing these services, whether it's abortion or, or trans health. And we need to just keep doing it no matter how awful we feel. And, you know, this has been an incredibly hard year and I have had conversations that I never would have wanted to have ever and that are hard to carry with me. And I'm going to carry these conversations. You know, these memories are like in my head now and I'm going to have them for the rest of my life, maybe. <laughs> and and um, yeah. they're, they're in my head, you know, they're there. I've, it's happened. And I'm just really grateful for the other people doing this work and that they're there and that I'm not the only one feeling this way and that we have each other's backs and that we, we do have the same fight. Like knowing that we have the same fight, I'm like, you know, I, that solidarity means means everything right now um because it's more than just like winning or losing like yeah we we've, we've lost a lot and we're continuing to lose a lot but we're all still here and we all still need we st- we, we still need like care we we need to to we just take care of ourselves and each other still so um i'm going to keep doing this work i know that other people are going to keep doing this work and I know that there will always be help available, whether, you know, finding it is one thing, but I know that it will always be there. And I try to take solace in that because this is, this is a collective trauma that our generation is going to see out for the rest of our lives and it's going to bleed into the next generation. And there's a lot I hope for, you know, before I die, there's a lot I hope to see. So I hope that I see it. To end this on a positive note, because I know at the very <laughs> beginning, I know like when we first started talking, Mia, I said we, were, we wanted to end on a positive note. So that involves me sharing like the thing that cheers me up the most and that like pushes all the right buttons for me. But there, there have been some good things in terms of like abortion access in the last six months. So I want to share that. Um, it all starts. <laughs> it starts with Partners Clinic. Um, uh, they Partners Clinic is an all trimester clinic in in Maryland, 
and they opened this year and um, they were doing fundraising. And first of all, they're amazing. They're an amazing team of workers, um, amazing uh, abortion providers. I love Partners Clinic. They're, I just, I could not, I cannot praise them enough. Um, and they, they were fundraising to open their clinic and have everything that they need and, you know, you know uh, have money for staff and everything. And it was picked up by um, prison culture uh, more commonly, or uh, th- that's like her online handle. A lot of people like know her as prison culture, but Mary Amikaba and she started fundraising for them. And she was able to help so much that they surpassed their goal and they opened. And now we have another all trimester abortion clinic in the United States staffed by the most compassionate, amazing, hardworking individuals. And that cheered me up so much because um, I obviously love uh, Mary Amakaba and, and prison abolition. I, you know, I'm a prison abolitionist. So seeing her like, seeing her see how the the issues are connected that they're like that you know they go together and and organizing for that on top of the work that she is already doing for abolition i was just like so happy to see that and um on the topic of all ab- or all trimester abortion clinics um there is another one opening up as well and this cheers me up immensely as well. They're called the Valley Abortion Group. They're not open yet. They're currently fundraising. I could probably send you the link to post yeah, maybe. Yeah, um, put it, we'll put it in the middle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're not open yet, but you know, they're getting there and they're called the Valley Abortion Group. Um, they're going to be another all-trimester clinic and they're going to be located in New Mexico. And they're, I just want to point out that their acronym is VAG, which I just, I think is really important to point out. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, so, you know, we saw partners open and that was amazing. And now we're going to have another one opening up and that's amazing. So, you know, love and support for Valley Abortion Group. Cause honestly, the more, we need abor- abortion clinics, period. Like we need yeah. more of them, Yeah. but especially all trimester, especially now yeah. that these bands have been pushing people further and further um, along into the pregnancy before they can access these services, it's so important for them to exist. And on this topic, I also want to bring up that, you know, there are stories out there of people who it takes them six months to get an abortion appointment. Six months. Jesus Christ. I just want to bring that up because that's happening. Um, yeah. Cause I know that I've said like five weeks a lot while we were talking, but like it takes some people six months. So yeah. it's really important for these all trimester abortion clinics to exist. Um, and, uh, and for us and the communities, um, that we're a part of to welcome them with open arms and like big love. And also on the same topic of good news, things that cheer me up, prison abolition, abortion, um, access, all of these good, good topics. Um, prison culture, Mary Macaba is now fundraising for another, um, abortion practical support group. And I, I have to mention this up because mention this because this fundraising is happening right now. Um, so if you go to prison cultures, Twitter, she's like fundraising for it every single day, but she is fundraising for the online abortion resource squad. So, uh, online abortion resource squad or ORS for short. Um, what they are is they are a entirely volunteer organization, which is why they need, you know, pay them for their labor. This is really important work that, daily monitors, moderates, and provides quality posts on our abortion, was our slash abortion. How should I read that? Um, so basically, our <laughs> slash abortion. So the Reddit, um, the subreddit for just abortion on Reddit, which 
I think that like when I immediately say that, some people might not realize how important that is. But as these bans have just spread and gotten worse and the abortion access deserts have widened, it is so important for people to be able to access quality information. And a lot of people go to Reddit. Like so many people go to Reddit to find out information. So like the daily page hits for r slash abortion is just up and up and up and up. And there's a group of volunteers that, you know, like donate their, their, their hours, their free time, you know, their energy to, to give people the answers that they're looking for and to like walk them through a process because a lot of people, you know, they want to help. So they post links. So they're like, Oh, you, you're in a band state and you can't access services. So they just post a link to, I don't know, like aid access, but it's more than, it's, it's not that easy. Like you can't just like yeah, give somebody yeah. a link to aid access and be like, here's your abortion. No, like you need to ask questions. You need somebody to assist you, follow up questions. If something doesn't work, like, oh my God, the payment's not working. Like you need help. And, or is the online abortion resource squad, they go into our abortion every single day and they make sure that people get help. And um, they've been doing this labor for free. And now prison culture is helping them basically get them, get them paid, get them money, get them, get them, get, make it so that way they can do that. Like, you know, they don't have to, you know, um, uh, find different, uh, options for employment. You know, uh, they don't have to struggle to get by. Like they, they, there's money sustaining them so that way they can make sure that people have their questions answered all day. And that is so important. Like, I just, like, I just, I never thought, like, if you had asked me, like, like seven years ago, if I thought people posting on Reddit would be life-saving, I would have totally, like, just not taken that seriously. But now I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, people are flocking to Reddit every day to try to find out how to get an abortion. And there are people volunteering their time to get them quality answers and make sure that they get the care that they're looking for. And I love that. I, I love that. Um, an abolitionist, like a prison abolition, police and prison abolitionist has identified that this is a significant need that, um, people in these different communities, um, that are typically like a little bit siloed are supporting each other's causes. I think that abolition and abortion go hand in hand. Um, and, and this just cheers me up immensely. And the fact that like, there are resource hubs online that are, that are like, that are coming to bat, you know, like, oh, this horrible thing has happened. Um, Roe v. Wade has been overturned. And what are we going to do? And it's like, well, go, go answer people's questions on Reddit. Um, and yeah, so I, I wanted to share that because I said a lot of sad stuff about how horrifying and traumatic and this all is and how there's so much human suffering. So I just, because of that, I just, I also wanted to to take time to say like, Hey, there are people making sure that people get care. There are amazing people, um, you know, working to get people paid and get people funding and make it so that way this work is sustainable. Cause like sustainability is its own thing. Like, yeah, yeah. who like it is hard to fight against fascism. Like it's, we're being, we're, we're having our, our basic, human rights violated on a daily basis and we are being dehumanized and that is incredibly difficult to fight constantly on top of having to pay your bills and 
you know, like deal with whatever the heck's going on in your life. So I'm just like, I'm really grateful for um, Mary Macaba and everyone who has helped her. I'm really grateful for um, partners and, and Valley Abortion Group, um, VAG. And I am really grateful for the Online Abortion Resource Squad, ORS, um, and all of their amazing volunteers. And I hope that like if somebody is feeling helpless and and like feeling like they don't know what to do in these really scary times, they can look toward like look to to these examples and be like, well, I can I can provide good information to people. I can share donation opportunities or donate myself and I I can uplift this stuff. Um and recognize how valuable even posting online can be sometimes. Cause like <laughs> posting online, usually not a good thing, but you know, if you are helping somebody get healthcare and you're utilizing like, you know, a, a popular platform to spread that information, you're, you're, you're doing a great job and you deserve all the shout outs. So, um, yeah. So yeah, those are some really, those, that's what's cheering me up in the year 2023 as I approach like June 24th um the the anniversary i'm like oh my god everything's really awful but this this is what's cheering me up so yeah i i, I don't know well okay i guess i do know why this is spontaneous leap leapt to my head but the thing that i the thing that i always think about is the the there, there's a zapatista slogan that goes zapata lives the struggle continues mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, I don't have anything else. It's, you know, but I mean, yeah, that's the struggle thing, like, continues. <laughs> look, like the the thing about this, right? Like, there there's a reason that it's a like they have to spend all of this effort on it because there is actually a struggle, and the fact that they have they spend so much effort and so much resources, so much of their time and so much of their power on this, like, is also proof of their weakness. That this is not something that they can do just sort of neutrally right and it, it's something that can be stopped it can be rolled back and yeah i mean the the, the fact that it is a struggle like it in and of itself like implies that they're wrong it, in, in and of itself demonstrates that we are also still fighting and mm-hmm. we are going to continue fighting and one day we are going to beat these fuckers yep i believe it i mean like yeah i i'm like talking openly and honestly about the toll of the human suffering, but I, I believe that we can stop this if we, if we keep going. And I, um, I hope I see that in my lifetime. <laughs> and I, uh, and I think it's, it's a Sada Shakur, I think where, what is it? Where there is oppression, there is resistance. Um, that, that, that makes me feel better, you know, like, cause which, oh God, God, just like, I know, speaking of liberals, there's, I just don't understand the, um, the take where it's like, oh, these red states are getting what they deserve. Texas is getting what they deserves. Florida is getting what, what they deserve. And it's like, no, like they, they're being oppressed and they are fighting their oppression. And I love people in those states and I love the people fighting. And I, I just, I don't know how you can look at that and not be filled with like love and awe. Um, just like in the way that like, I I'm filled with like love and awe when I see like how hard people are working to navigate these barriers and to access the healthcare that they need. Like, I'm just like, you are being so brave. You are, you're so strong to do this. And like, not everyone is seeing it. Um, you know, cause like, these are like, you know, private 
like journeys to get healthcare, but like I'm seeing it and I'm like, God, these people are so amazing and people are fighting so hard and they are continuing to struggle and they're not giving, I mean, some people are giving up because the, uh, like the state is like forcing it on them, but like a lot of people aren't giving up. And I am, I'm constantly in awe about that because yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a lot of witnessing human suffering and people suffer, but also it's witnessing a lot of people be really strong and really fight and for what they deserve. And I'm so glad I get to witness that too. Um, even though I wish, you know, I didn't have to see all the suffering, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm really grateful to see the struggle too. Um, I, I love human beings and (laughs) I'm just, we're awesome. Like we, I mean, a lot of us aren't, but (laughs) the rest of us are okay um putting up a good fight so i think we can win i think we can win yeah um yeah so i i I know we've talked about a few links uh do you have anything else that uh any other links that you want to uh talk about to send people to so yeah the jesus christ do you have anything else you want to send people to so that they can help support the struggles that are going on I don't think I have any additional ones I want to give right now. Um, I, I think that the ones that I, I've i brought up like deserve all of the attention right now. Um, so I'm just going to like say them again. So I know um, previously I, I mentioned the Texas Equal Access Fund, the T-Fund um, in Texas is doing a lot right now. Um, and honestly, the other Texas funds are too. That was just like the one that I see the most. Um, Chicago Abortion Fund is, is doing amazing work right now. Um, Partners Clinic, which is located in in Maryland, like shout out to their team. I love them so much. They are they they are like the light in the darkness right now. Um, uh, Valley Abortion Group, Vag, which will hopefully um, be opening. I, I don't know when they're opening, but I'm I'm looking forward to them opening so much in in New Mexico. And and then the online abortion resource squad, ORS, the Saints of r slash abortion like i just um i want to like shout them out with this like platform that i have right now um so google all them check them out click the links um and then of course you know again your local abortion fund like it just just don't get tired of hearing donate to your local abortion fund just like say it again just like write it on the back of your eyeballs um (laughs) it's that that is that's what be getting that's what's getting people healthcare right now um people who can't wait. So yeah, I just like uplifting all those things again. Like, um, I'm sure like there, there are a lot of amazing groups doing work. Um, I could probably like take like an hour listing all of them, but, uh, like right now, those are the ones where I'm like, hell yeah, this is amazing. So. Yeah. I, yeah, thank you. Thank you again so much for for coming and talking with us about this. Yeah, I love talking about um all of the pain and suffering and <laughs> you know, catch me outside screaming at the sky and shaking my fist and drinking a lot of mimosas. Yeah. In the next couple of weeks. <laughs> this is a rough this is a rough month. This yeah. is a rough month. Um I'm not happy to be here. <laughs> But yeah. I'm happy about some things. Just um, this is not. It's been a hard year. It's been a really hard yeah. year. 
Yeah. But I'm happy to be on this podcast. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> yeah, and and I I hope I hope all of you in literally whatever way you can, like, do do something to make this better, because we 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 all owe it to each other, and we we owe it to everyone who has to live under the system that, you know, like has been built in our name to do something, and not to just sort of sit back and let this. Just let the engine of suffering mm-hmm. keep rolling over more people. And even small things are valuable yeah. too. I feel like a lot of, I've known a lot of people who are like, you know, like, oh, you know, I got a lot going on and I can't, I don't know how to, I just can't help that much. And it's like, even the little things you do are meaningful. Like even like $10 is like, so, like somebody who's traveling's lunch, you know, like that's a big deal. So don't, don't undersell the little things that you can do. Um, even little things are really meaningful right now. Like what you have the capacity for, no one's going to, I'm not going to shake a stick at it. I, I think any contribution is is incredibly valuable, no matter how small. So unless you're rich. Yeah, unless you're rich, in which case. Unless you're rich, then then <laughs> what are you doing? Like why? So, there are some people I'm like, why are they like, oh, 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 while I'm here. While I'm actually speaking of rich, <laughs> while I'm on a podcast and we can talk about things, like can't people who can help like i'm thinking about like taylor swift right now like taylor swift can probably donate so much money to abortion funds right because like she's touring right now and she's um she's having all these concerts in various parts of the world and those hotel prices are going up like crazy so like i know that she had um a concert in chicago recently and the chicago abortion fund was like trying to book hotels for traveling abortion patients so patients who are traveling from Ban states to get abortion services in Chicago, and they were paying like way more for the hotel um, hotel costs because of the the local Taylor Swift concert. Yeah. And it's like Taylor Swift donate to abortion funds. What are you doing? You're driving up hotel prices for patients. Just what you, just donate, donate to abortion funds, Taylor Swift. So that's what I, I just wanted to add that. Or any artist who's driving up hotel prices. Come on, people need health care. What are you doing? <laughs> what oh, what wonderful system that we live in a uh, wonderful opportunity in this generation to make it not be like that <laughs> i know right um like i resent having to ask but still yeah <laughs> yeah um, so I, I guess that that's my that's my closing message to the listeners is go, go out into the world and make the world not fucking like this <laughs> yeah yeah can we not yeah Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, 
including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional. You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.